This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Dakota Sylvie, an Air Force veteran, wildland firefighting veteran, recently got his EMT license, and yet he's also pursuing an MFA as a playwright. Um, I met Dakota for the first time, or I knew of Dakota uh, initially, because he submitted plays to us, I think in our inaugural playwriting competition. I then met him in person at Arts and the Armed Forces Bridge Awards in whatever that was, 21, 22? 22, I think. Their last one, it turned out, that they ever held before that organization went under. And then um, I went to see a play reading of one of Dakota's plays. And then Dakota and I have met for beers and talked about his work. So that's all to say that by the time we sat down for this interview, we, we knew each other and had talked through a bunch of things. Fortunately, we had not exhausted all of our conversation uh, at that point. And uh, it was the first time we really could talk um, about everything in Dakota's life and not confined just to a play or just one particular subject. And it was great. I mean, Dakota, so I knew enough about him already to know just how broad his life experience was. Um, you know, this dichotomy of passions in his life. You know, so many people go hard into one and then pivot into the other. You know, they do the military or whatever and then end up going into the arts. For Dakota to have kind of been nursing both of these passions at roughly the same times is uh, interesting, intriguing. Um, it's rich subject matter. And um, I loved hearing his point of view about it and I won't give any spoilers, but, um, but it was a great time talking. There was a major level seven user error that you all will pick up very quickly, which is that somehow I managed to not record my mic during this episode. So my sound 
you can hear me. And Mike Neal, our producer, did a great job. You can hear my audio. Fine. It just clearly sounds like I'm on another planet. Um, so thank you for your patience with that. And fortunately, Dakota does most of the talking. And he's the one you really want to hear from. So he sounds great. Um, I sound like I'm trapped in a box. But inshallah, that's just how that went. So <clears throat> I don't think I have anything else really to say. Um, this is the first time I think we've put out an episode where we've had this. So I feel whatever, however many episodes we're in, whatever this is, 129 or whatever. Yeah. Well, we, we broke that. We broke that. Uh, that hitting streak. Um, <laughs> but be that as it may, uh, we'll fix that going forward. And I'm just thrilled to be able to sit down um, and talk in person. I have to give a big shout out to the players in New York City where Dakota and I were able to meet and sit down and talk. It's such a great club that's four stories of rich theatrical history. So to be able to sit with a playwright like Dakota and, uh, you know, he was drinking it all in and it's just a great environment to conduct an in-person podcast interview. Okay, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Dakota Sylvie's Profile in Havoc. All right, Dakota, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be in person. I know, right? Yeah. I know it goes a long freaking way. I was just tired of looking at screens, you know. Yeah, and I'm too frustrated with technology, internet <laughs> cutting out, and <laughs> yeah. Also, ambulances going by my window. Oh yeah, well that's cool. I mean that's that's good ambient noise. It gives us a type of setting, which is kind of fun. Yeah, dude, where were you traveling? You just came back from overseas, right? Yep, I um, took this whole sort of winter break to to take some time in India, visited a friend, and then motorcycle top to bottom why uh because i'm addicted to traveling really yeah i i try to take a trip every winter and it's usually very like hostels keep it cheap and sure um and i actually stole the idea from a, a theater technician who you know the dry month is january so he calls it operation fuck winter so <laughs> i stole his gotcha. his idea where uh have you been to india before my first time so where did you end up spending most of your time? Or was it really none you were just traveling? My friend is, um, he's from Bangalore and he's an actor in New York City as well. And so I got to stay with him and his mom is a, a great actress. Her, name, her name's Shanti Krishna. And so I got to hang with them. I got to even go to like a little Bollywood set, spend, spend New Year's, Christmas with them. And then I kind of took off and solo traveled. Wow. I mean, how was it overall? What's your, what's your bottom line? Amazing. Yeah. One of my best trips. Um, it was cool because I don't usually know someone yeah. when I like I went to Vietnam last year. I didn't know anyone. I just kind of solo tripped it, met other travelers. But it was cool to actually place in with people who yeah. know what's going on, <laughs> especially yeah. with, like getting picked up from the airport. That's never happened for me traveling abroad. Right. That was nice. You know, Yeah. what was the airport? Like? Um, Bangalore, which is, I think, pretty much the third largest city has a new airport and it's amazing. It was oh, really? spectacular. In fact, when they picked me up, they were looking at it cause they hadn't seen it yet. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it wasn't crazy with like, like it wasn't, uh, you know, a mob scene that the doors getting 
Right, which is usually the case, like you have people trying to get you in like tuk-tuks or taxis. And so I was able to push past that. There's a few people, but this airport, this terminal is quite new. So uh, very empty, beautiful, nice ambient lighting, music. What was it like traveling through India? What were your takeaways from the Um, I mean, the biggest takeaway I always get when I leave here is everything is so much older, you know? <laughs> you come back, I appreciate the building we're in, but it like doesn't hold a candle to some of the sort of temples and ruins and... I got to go see like some just beautiful waterfalls. Even the waterfalls felt different, like hit different. So, um, but getting to travel to the different regions, um, even in other countries I've been to, I've never experienced such a difference between each region. And even my friend and his mother were telling me, seriously, every state, different food. Like they're like the food we eat, down in Bangalore, down in Kerala, nothing compared to some of the places you're going to see up north. Like, even we have to adjust. And so it was so cool that, like, I think for 30 days, never repeated a dish. Really? <laughs> yeah, like, just, what's that up? Thank you. I'll have that. Are you a um, Yeah, I mean, definitely traveling. I push myself out of my comfort zone, but I do get into comfortable eating habits. It's funny, in New York, you'd think I'd get used to it. Eating everything, then I get overwhelmed and I just eat like the same, right. like chicken and rice. Um, how the food compare to Indian food here? Um, you know, and my friend who spent time in New York, he agrees. Like it just, he, he can even get the spice. He's a great cook too. He can get the spices. He can make you amazingly amazing dosas and masalas. And he's like, but somehow, you know, when he's back home, there's something different. And I agree, like, um, of course, Indian food here compared to the rest of the U.S. or, you know, like Britain or something, um, decent. You know, New York City, I, I think wonderful. I'm obviously not going to be in Indian food for a little while, but I'll definitely take notes next time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you travel, are you a people person or are you a nature sightseeing person or both? I get, I get stuck between the two, but, you know, you get to some of these hostels and you meet all these people traveling the world which is what I it's like one of my favorite parts is you're meeting people who just want to go experience things from you know usually not Americans and uh, and then yeah if I get to a hostel and there's like some big you know waterfall or uh, hiking trip something like that I'm, I'm very nature oriented I'll go do that I'll try to get into the culture go do like a you know food tour or um, you know, go see a temple. I mean, the nice thing, my last few trips, like Vietnam and India, some of these temples are far away from the city. I get a motorbike out there, enjoy like this green, lush overcropping and get to, I mean, I remember seeing a temple in Vietnam that like this ancient tree had like dominated this uh, building, Angkor Wat, like one of the structures at the Angkor Wat temple. And I just was amazed at how the tree had like taken back and like grown over this beautiful temple. Um, does the writer in you get inspired traveling or is it kind of like a timeout just to chill that part of your brain? Absolutely. I, I don't think I ever get a timeout even when I'm like motorbiking. I'm just like internal. I think that's what's nice is I get a timeout from New York when I travel and um, that introspection that I get. And also, big part of my 
being a writer is the writers I love are like adventure enthusiasts. And I always thought when reading stories of adventure or excitement, like when I found out, oh no, like Jack London, he went to the Yukon Gold Rush. He didn't just write about it from like a room. Um, And then on the other hand, you know, I found out that, you know, Stephen Crane wrote The Red Badge of Courage having not participated in the war. And yeah, isn't that wild? I, I, yeah, I hope fact check me on that. I'm pretty darn sure. Exactly. It's so good. He interviewed everyone. He was a boy during that war, and people swore when reading it. Like veterans yeah. were like, "You had to have been there. There's right, no right. way." And then they met him, and it's like, "You're too young." Um, and then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then he's also an adventure writer. Like he's. Uh, there's stories of him like gun running in Cuba and doing all sorts of wild stuff. And then, you know, like the, the sort of third part of that is like, so like Hemingway's, you know, Farewell to Arms. He wasn't at um, the famous withdrawal that he wrote about. But I mean, he was there, just not that event. But then all the veterans, all the people who were there who read it could swear he was specifically at that moment. So I'm amazed at like what a writer can do, but of course I'm, you know, I'm probably not going to write like a story about India, but I hope it influences everything else in my life. Like the people I meet, the relationships, and also like just, you know, the thoughts you have while traveling and introspecting. I hope it influences, even if I'm just writing a kitchen sink drama or something. Does it help or does it expand your ear for dialogue? Just being around all these people, especially when they're not from the United States, not just Indians. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Whoever you're in the hostel with. Absolutely. The the cacophony of voices in like a hostel bar. Um, typically a lot of Aussies. Um, and hearing them all communicate. Some people don't speak English as well. Sometimes they're speaking their native language to their friend. And getting to experience all of that, all the storytelling that goes on. Um, I pay, I have such an interest in accents and like dialects that I, you know, I make, I do this thing with my girlfriend where I'm like, do you hear that accent? Like, she's like, no, my girlfriend speaks English as a second language. So if I hear a Southern accent, I'm like, do you hear that guy's drawl? And she's like, no, it all sounds the same to me. (laughs) And she'll joke. She's like, I don't have an accent. I'm like, sure you don't. Sure you don't. (laughs) So I'm, I've always been interested in kind of that kind of now in the 21st century, well, even in the late 20th century, <clears throat> that if you wanted to be an adventurer, I mean, I guess you can always try to push the envelope and find adventures. Mm-hmm. Generally, it's hard. You at least need the baseline understanding, and it's hard to find really cool adventures if you're not in the military. Right. So it's like, hey, motherfucker, if you want an adventure, go fucking join the military. Yeah. Um, what Now, with your perspective... What's different, what's advantageous about travel? What do you enjoy about travel separate from the military versus when you're in the military? And what kind of experiential takeaways do you have? You know, like, for me, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this. Like, like, for me, like, this is my own bias. <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of tourism because I'm like, you get to see something great, it's awesome, and, there, and, there's, and like, there's certain things, romantic reasons, family reasons or just kind of general relaxation 
I can tolerate tourism, but I'm like, don't come back and tell me that you know a place. Unless you've been in a place helping an indigenous people work on their problem set, that's like where you really learn a place. Really. Right. I once had a Ugandan general tell me this. He said, uh, if you really want to know a place, we were not in Uganda when he told me this, I should mention. <laughs> but he said, if you ever want to know a place, eat the food, speak the language, fuck the women. That's how you learn a place. And obviously, I guess you can do that in the military. <laughs> but I mean, but the military gets you, as, I think, as close as you safely can to that because you're there, you're encouraged to learn languages, you're encouraged to like, immerse yourself, and you're in the problem set. Yeah. So you've you got skin in the game. You're not just there as an impartial bystander. Um, whereas as a tourist, it's probably easier to fuck the women, eat the food, and if you want, learn the language. But you don't have access necessarily, or at least safely or with left and right limits to all the interesting things that you might otherwise see because you're not in the military. Yeah. That's kind of my overall global dichotomy between like travel and like travel with a purpose, like, you know, military style travel. How do you fall on that? And now somebody that loves travel, like how does that sit with you? Like what do you, how do you feel traveling? What, what difference does it make for you? Yeah, I agree. I, I got to do like a tour in, uh, in South Korea and really like embrace the culture and sort of live in the country versus just like, I even think about if I went back now, it's going to feel so different. Uh, I'll be a tourist. And, you know, when I, I lived in near Osan air base and I also got to work with, you know, the local populace, like, um, I got to work with the Korean National Police. I used, I used to walk, like, essentially a beat in, like, the outskirts of Seoul. And I really, like, spent thousands of hours just, like, sometimes just watching, like, just observing um, the culture of not just, like, Koreans, but other international people, Americans, how they interact, all the businesses. I got to actually, like, create relationships and bonds with people, also the people I worked with, versus... Yeah, I think about if I went back now, like, it's different. I don't know. It's like going back to your old college or something, yeah, you know. Yeah. Everything's changing and growing. Um, for instance, this last time traveling to India, I got to actually, like, have a connection to someone, and they were able to show me not so much the touristy things. The nice thing about motorcycling through, like, Vietnam or India is I did go to places where people were, like, how did you get here? You know, like, like off the beaten path. I, I was in a coastal town in uh, Vietnam, just taking sort of a scenic route. And this, uh, this student came up to me and he's like, I go to NYU. What are you doing here? <laughs> he's like, I'm on break. What are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm on break too. I'm, I'm traveling, you know? And so he's, uh, he's studying abroad. He's from that town. And he's like, Oh, well, if you're lost, go this way. I'm like, I, I think I know. I don't think I'm lost. He thought I was lost. You know, he wanted to help me, which was so nice. And uh, he was just so surprised. His whole life, maybe he'd never seen um, like a solo traveler, maybe maybe a bus. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I think, yeah, living in the culture, <laughs> learning some language. I went to like language exchange, like courses in Korea, and. Um, of course, yeah, my, I got to spend a month in India. I'll, I'll never get to know, like, that entire country. Sure, sure. Um, I felt like I got such a great swath. Yeah. Um, well, driving the length of it. Yes, that's yeah. That's such a kinetic experience. Like, that's, yeah, that's yeah. more than a 
Yeah, I felt I've done like, you know, like my first trip out, out of the middle. Oh, here's a big thing, too, is the freedom. I mean, you know, in Korea, like, don't go too far, you know, like um, it's also just a, you know, intense kind of area. And they, you know, they you can't bring your spouse, can't bring your car like you're there for a year. Um, and then I remember like that feeling of freedom when you get out of the military and it's like I could just disappear. <laughs> like, like I traveled Europe for two months backpacking and what was nice is I was still on active duty. Um, I took 60 days of leave to get out early, and I just hopped cargo planes around Europe. Right. And uh, Exactly. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And then, like, as soon as I got off the plane, I was free. You know, like, you know, I took a few commercial flights wow. where it suited. But that first feeling of freedom, and I also thought, let me sow my wild oats. Let me get my two months of travel, and then I'll you know, I'll roost and I'll like go to school and I'll like be a writer. And then, no, that just fueled an addiction after that. Like, you know, I, I think since then I've been tireless. Like when I go vacation, I can't relax. Like I'm on a motorcycle. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, are you addicted to the freedom? Do you think it's the freedom that still drives that? Yeah. I mean, it it fuels my imagination and creativity. The idea that I could just like, disappear into another society or just become an expat i don't but like yeah. <laughs> or i meet expats um you know i i met a guy in vietnam that he had done you know his 20 years in the army got out and he just travels like almost aimlessly and it was just fascinating to pick his brain i thought about what would that be like i've met people one of my first like travel friends that i met was in rome and he was from India and I, I visited the place he was from and I almost connected with him by, by a day, but he told me he left his job and just works at hostels now, you know, meeting people who have that kind of mindset is so interesting and that feeds my creativity as well. But, you know, I've got other things that I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to do a balance, but I think the traveling days are going to slow down more and more, especially when I get uh, finished with my grad program. So it's interesting. Um, I feel like, I mean, tell me how you feel about this, but I always feel like uh, the adventurous side of me would be, is in conflict with the theatrical side of me. Like, if you want to be a novelist, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, travel, you can do all this stuff. Yes. It's like, you need the place so much for theater that's like, fuck, I, you got to, like, love the place you're in and, and roost in that place, yeah. right? Um, and that's how I feel. Do you feel the same way? Is there a little bit of tension when you're like, oh, shit, now i got to confine this to a stage and I can't, like... Like novel, I can explore a lot more. Yeah. Stage, I gotta be limited by these four walls that this is gonna be in, and I'm gonna need buy-in from all these other stakeholders in this production. Like, does that start to limit you, and do you find that energizing, limiting? You know, how does that strike you? Yeah, exactly. I think the limitations of theater breed such. You know, it's funny. I speak of freedom, but yeah. the 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 limitations of the different mediums for writers kind of yield like these interesting results. And, you know, I write short stories, you know, I intend to write a novel one day. And that's why I try to like sort of soak in all those experiences and let them feed my storytelling. Whereas, you know, maybe this play doesn't take place in India, but I met a guy who, you know, told a story about quitting his job in the rat race of tech in India. And now he just travels the world endlessly. That's a character like that's someone that I could easily see in my play. Maybe that character is an Indian, you know, maybe that character is just 
someone who like is that's a that's a person I can relate to actually. And so it's those people that I want to bring sort of relation to. And of course, like, yeah, the limitations of like, for instance, you know, you want to write like a military play. It's like, how can you encompass the military in a play? I think the sparseness of getting characters to talk to each other and the different ways you can mess with timelines or if you want to lean into the three unities and just have a story take place at one set. I Yeah, I'm actually, you know, I'm trying to unthink how I'm so obsessed with one set, one place. You know, you read a play like Angels in America, it's so, who thought you could encompass like so many topics or like just New York City, like one second we're out we're outside of a synagogue or a church the next second we're in central park and somehow the way it's written and the way i've seen it 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 just works like it like we buy it um so yeah like i i think about i i saw recently a friend of mine actually wrote this great like hostile play where you know I, i'd always been thinking that's sure like maybe one day i'll write like a play where it's a hostel and you got all these international characters so he had done that and i found it very interesting to see um, I don't know if I'm at the place to write my play that's like that yet, but I'm always looking for the environment where you can put unlikely characters together. That is like one thing I like about the military or like I work as a wildland firefighter, like the people I meet with different degrees and backgrounds, parts of the country, sometimes parts of the world doing the same thing together. That's like, okay, you've got unity of like people in one place yeah. or like, one objective. And so that's like one of the things I touched to like bus stop, um, um, by William Inge. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was like one of the first plays I read that like they're stuck in a snowstorm in this like bus stop cafe in (laughs) Kansas. You got like a New Yorker and a California person and they don't like each other, you know, things like that. I'm, I'm projecting whatever these characters. I know one person is like a New England type and then you got this sort of Kansas folks that are like, what are you doing here? You know, those are like putting unlikely characters into a circumstance. I think that's what theater allows you to do. And those are the kind of stories that I'm trying to figure out and find, you know, maybe it's bringing the people to one place versus trying to capture these places. What makes you think something's going to be a play versus a short story or potentially your grand magnum opus novel? Right. I think that's a part of it, right? Like, I think um, some stories, I I think writers come up with some stories and you just kind of, like, mark it down. It's like, oh, this feels like a screenplay or this feels like a short story. You know, um, I think there's been a few of these, but... Um, a picture of a Dorian Gray, you know, Oscar Wilde. I saw a, a stage adaption and I thought to myself, like, wait, the playwright didn't, the playwright wrote a novel and somebody else made an adaption. And it's like, well, why didn't Oscar Wilde do that? Why did you think to do that? Um, so I am thinking a lot about the format or the medium a story needs to be told. Um, so I think a big part of that is the adventure aspect or something like that, you know, the travel aspect. I do sometimes conceive stories where I'm like, I just don't see this being dialogue. Yeah. Um, and I don't try to force it. You know, <sighs> I, it took me a long time to like decide to write like a, a firefighter play or something. I didn't want to force, like I didn't want somebody pretending to fight a fire on stage personally. It's just not my aesthetic. I love the theater. You know, I've seen plays and read plays where people take, 
great risks and they say, let's get a design team together and we'll figure out a solution to this or, you know, make it surreal, make it absurd. I think that's awesome too. Like people have broken through those constraints. And then, so yeah, I really wrestle with like, is this story meant to be on a stage? Can I, can I capture that? And then there, I mean, lately I've, I read, I'll say for instance, like a play, a cost of living, um, by Martina Mayok and, the sparseness of like the way it jumps in time, the way it goes from scene to scene and this almost how limited it is where your brain fills the gaps where the audience is like actively like try, you know, kind of putting together the puzzle pieces that she doesn't write. That fascinates me greatly. I'm trying to figure out, you know, maybe not every play, but like plays where that can fit you know, that context can fit where, uh, the, you let the audience build circumstances outside of the scene, you know, and a lot of actors spend time building those circumstances as well. So that's like a play where maybe someone might think, well, that feels like a movie, you know, like this is such a encompassing story. Um, and she was able to like, which is just this bare bones, like skeleton make such a riveting play. So I'm, I'm kind of looking for, where places in my life or stories I see where you can get just the meat of something and you can, you can kind of build that around it. Yeah. Why did you get into theater? I mean, so given your passions and your lifestyle and what turns you on, why the, what the fuck drew you to theater in the first place? Yeah, that one, I usually have a joke that goes with it, but I, um, I've always fancied myself a writer and, um, you know, recently, uh, I had a cool exercise for my school where we had to put together sort of a literary tree where like you, a literary tree, kind of like a family tree where you trace the authors that inspire you. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. I went through my timeline and I started to see like these connections to, you know, like, why am I like this? You know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, when I was eight, I tried to write a novel because I loved Oliver Twist so much. And... I got like three pages in and got lazy and gave up. And then when I was like 11, 12, I don't remember. I think it was like the second grade. I tried to start a newspaper at the elementary school and immediately was just like, couldn't, there wasn't enough drama. There wasn't enough conspiracy. I was starting to invent like conspiracies. I'm pretty sure. I wish I could find those original like one page newspapers I made and I couldn't really enlist my enlist my friends to join like you know they'd say yeah but they're like what do you this is me just like my parents going go ahead yeah like I, I got the principal of that school like I had a meeting with the principal and he's like okay I gotta read it before you print it but you know he like fueled that like whatever that was and so I always thought to be a writer I thought Maybe I'd be a journalist. And then, you know, my mom always pushed me towards sort of investigative journalism. She thought that would be a a good angle for me. And then, you know, like later in life, I thought about conflict journalism. Um, And then I, you know, and then what happens is in high school, I I moved around my whole life and I ended up moving to Idaho and I was so. Why'd you move around? uh, My mom's a travel nurse and my dad's a forester. And so, you know, people off the bat say, like, army brat. And I say, like, close enough. You know, like, forests are kind of like bases. You go to, like, these different ones and you kind of, 
you get orders, you go to a different one. And, um, so yeah, just, and also my mom and her father, nomadic, it's like completely a part of our sort of lineage is a sort of nomadic lifestyle. My grandpa worked on, uh, like, uh, boats going up and down the Missouri and the Mississippi. And, uh, so she spent her whole life just like kind of going place to place like that. Um, I guess the way it would more work is he'd like move to a port or an area, work on a boat, be traveling, come back, come traveling, come back, and then go to a different state, go to a different area. So, um, and then when I got to this new high school in Idaho, I just come from like the DC area. I was so fired up on like, I don't know, all the, all the museums and art and writing. And I knew I was going to be in the military. Like that was huge for me. I thought I would go get that experience and still be a writer. Um, definitely. I think even before I went to this, before I was a freshman, it was on the back of my mind. Um, but I did the like JROTC stuff for freshman and sophomore year. And I really like, I loved sort of the community and the teamwork and we had such a great instructor that had done a whole career in the military and he was just so real about like, he's not like here to serve you up a plate of patriotism, but he's also like, this is, it could be a good life. And like, you know, this is all this, you know, I got to see the world, all these things. And, um, I was getting really good at all that team stuff, you know, like the drill and the rifle team and, um, that became kind of like my thing that I was focusing on. And then, you know, a couple of sports on the side, but th- those were like my sports. And then I moved to Idaho and I was so distraught to move, uh, that I tried to convince my parents to send me to a military school, uh, that would like, yeah, this is so weird that I was like, yeah, send me a boarding school. And my parents are like, we can't afford that. And also we don't want to send you away. Is uh, but you know I got to Idaho and they didn't really have a program like that, so I fell into like more into sports. Um, I fell into the theater kids. I mean, all told, I joined a class because of a girl, uh, and um, and that fizzled out. And then I was just left in this theater gla- class as like sort of a brooding, you know, teenager. Yeah. And uh, my the wonderful teacher. Um, Christine Hansen, who had, she lived this life in New York as an actor and all these things. And she came out because her and her husband were working on curating the museum. Like she wasn't supposed to be in Idaho. Like I don't think ever in her life she thought I'm going to move to Idaho. And so that was great. Like she told us all these stories of, you know, traveling on national tours and working in theater. And I was like inspired by that. I was like, I want to go to New York city. Like, um, and then she saw me like, brooding in the back of this little black box theater and was like, you should, you're going to stage manage the next show. And so I did that and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the problem solving, the magic of the theater, all that stuff. And then we set out to write uh, children's plays, like adaptions of children's stories. And I got so like overdone with it. Like I wrote like five, you know, every person was supposed to just write one. I came in with like four or five of like my of different children's stories I adapted. And then we went to all the elementary schools and we performed them. And I got such a thrill from like how, you know, what do you call that sort of like suitcase theater? Like uh, that sort of portable theater was so fun. And the kids absolutely loved it. 
and I performed in them, but I never really cared for performing. I really was like so excited to see like this sort of world created and all the people participating in it. And, you know, as a stage manager, I was also like managing these things, helping logistics, all building the sets. And, um, that's when I finally found like, maybe this is the medium of writer I want to be because, you know, the other joke for me is like, I watched print media kind of fizzle out as I grew up and then thought, why don't I pick something more niche? Uh, and like you know less likely to make me a living yeah someone's been on the deathbed since like 1977 yeah i decided to go deeper into like a career that is just like dead ends left and right you know um of course there's still print media but it's just so much right you know the new york times is way less people than it was uh before the internet so um so it seems like all these threads really there from an early age. Like, none of this, you weren't late to any of this. This was all on brand for you. The military thing, the love of nature, and kind of this desire to travel, right. free, yeah. and theater, and writing, right? What, what was the, how much of your writing was theater-based, and how much of it wasn't? How much of it was other kinds of writing as you started to mature? Yeah, now I think about it, uh, the first full length I wrote um, was sort of my capstone for high school. They had this like new program that year where you had to do like some big thing. Maybe it had to do with your life. Like if you want to do fashion, you'd make a fashion show or something. And so I set out to write a full length. And I think many of my teachers, as I was an underperformance student, were like, right. And I, you know, put out like a 90 page hot piece of garbage. But and now that I think about it, every scene was a different location. I, I'd written a Greek. Uh, I had adapted Sisyphus's story of like, you know, pushing the boulder and like I had read or heard or some some kind of media told me that he escaped Hades one time. He had tricked Hades or Thanatos into, you know, seeing his love. And I thought, what if he just kept running? Like I, I wrote this play where, you know, the first scene is that he's in Greece and he convinces death to let him go because he doesn't want to die and he's so young and you know completely off the rails with whatever greek right. touchstone is yeah. at this point sure. and um i had him go in each scene to a different person uh, meet a different famous figure and kind of be inspired by like what's the meaning of life and he went all the way up until basically you know the 08 housing crisis wow. and each moment was like you know he meets um I think I was inspired by Chekhov and I was like, he meets a doctor. It was basically Chekhov. And he says, you know, he says, ah, no, like life is living. It's adventure. And this doctor says, no, it's, it's like helping others. It's, you know, Chekhov famously wrote something like, you know, each man should build a school, like almost like as if that was his best thing they ever did. He built a school with his hands. And so, you know, it's helping others. And then he meets, um, he meets a king and the king says, no, it's power. And then, you know, finally at the end, he meets a Wall Street fat cat type and he says, you know, no, it's money. And then finally I have the character kind of come to sort of a thing where he's like, okay, you know, I think I figured out what life is to me and I'm ready to go. And like each, each scene, like the Nautos is on his tail is chasing him. And, uh, it's like, okay, cool. Now we just talked about all this travel and stuff. I put all these like Russia, Greece, wow all these locations. And I think that is like a bedrock of like, 
maybe that's me trying to do like this adventure travel thing into a play. And then I think since then I haven't, it's funny. And I also had an session with one set and that play, I mean, must've had six or seven different sets and scenes, completely unstageable. (laughs) It's, um, did I hear you say that you were not a good student? Oh, horrible. I am, I brag about it. I, I had a 1.7 GPA in high school. Were you just not into school? I'm assuming because you don't, I mean, first off, most people that are struggling in school don't have a passion for writing, right? And then your JROTC background, all that, like, so there's some discipline. Mm -hmm. You're doing sport, like, there's a lot of very positive indicators. So that seems strange. What was the reasoning behind that? I, um, the thing that I could maybe put a pin in, but it, I hate excuses, is I transferred high schools the first week of freshman year. So I showed up to my second high school in D.C. with freshman transcripts that were definitely incomplete. And I think somebody just shoved me into sophomore classes. And I didn't realize it. Look at me thinking I'm a prodigy or something, and I'm with sophomores. And it took me a while to realize I was with 10th graders. Um, I'm in AP English, I'm in AP math, like uh, geometry or something, having not taken algebra, having never learned how to write, uh, how to even cite, I never didn't know what a citation was. And so the first week, you know, professors are like, oh, you remember that thing from last year, from your last professor? Let's, let's write this AP paper uh, with the citations and everything. And I absolutely like just crashed. And my mom had no idea. Like I never really communicated. Like I was like, am I dumb? Like what's going on? Like I'm, and I think in retrospect, we finally realized, I mean, halfway through this semester or trimester or whatever, my mom was finally getting like notifications of like, your kid is like crashing, you know, at school. And so we got to come and meet teachers and the teachers are finding out with my mom that I'm a freshman. Perhaps I just, you know, I can't really remember that well. I was quite shy. Um, and then finally, you know, they switched me into the proper classes. Now I'm like halfway through a semester trying to figure out algebra. And that teacher, because I don't communicate well enough, thinks I just switched from another algebra class. He doesn't know that I've been doing jack all for half a semester trying to figure out shapes. And so then that meeting comes up towards the end of the semester. And, you know, my mom's being brought in because I'm failing that class. And he says, oh, I, didn't, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. And I remember him being, you know, kind of rude to me about it. You know, like, how do you not get this? Like, right, right, right. and he kind of apologized profusely. I felt like guilt on his end. And he said, you could retake all the tests. Well, I'll work through it with you. And we did, but it just, it was just not going to happen. I wasn't going to be able to put th- those pieces, those building blocks together. And then from then on, I think I just, it just, I just rode that wave of just like never being able to like sort of get back to the crest and me thinking at that point how badly I want to go to like West Point or or something like that was like not going to happen. And JROTC was like I would skip class and go to that or I would spend way too much time doing that. And the instructor in that class could see your grades. Like the JROTC instructor is like you need to have good academic performance. He pushed me to do better. He gave me that structure. Um, you know, I stumbled out of sophomore year into my new school in um, Idaho and kind of just got into that. And yeah, I just dragged my feet. I was good at English, good at history, bombing math generally, not putting in the time. 
and um, I, you know, I, I started doing this. It's funny to admit, but like I, I wrote essays for money. Like I started writing essays wow. for like other students. And instead of like, I'd write my essay and I do fine in English, but I wouldn't do any of the other homework. So I just uh. totally, so I just leaned so hard into either JROTC or writing or theater and just neglected everything else. And then, you know, I'm, it's proud to say like my undergrad, you know, I went to the military, all those things. I did school while I was in the military, like voraciously, like I tackled classes constantly. Um, community college, the Air Force, State Fair, Community College. And I'm like in the middle of an exercise in Korea, like typing an essay on my phone, yeah. doing fine, like, you know, 3.5 and up GPA. I went to undergrad here. I did fine, you know, like 3.8. I went to the new school and I transferred into there. I knocked out uh, creative writing. I wanted to go for theater, and they convinced me since I was a veteran all these things that I should do this other program. And I thought, okay, well, can I take writing classes, uh, playwriting classes? And they went, sure. And then I went to the school, and they're like, yeah, you can't take those those playwriting classes. You can only take the general ones. Those ones are for the theater kids. So I so I kind of dragged my feet through that. You know, I did fine. Actually, what I enjoyed was all the different types of writing that exposed me to, like sure. criticism. Like sure. that's one of the hardest I took a class on criticism, like dance, food, theater. Unbelievable. I couldn't, like, it was such a cool experience. So I, I'm not griping about all those things as much as I am, like, I, I messed up. I didn't read the details, you know, on, on this other program, the bachelor's adult program. And so, yeah, and then now I'm, I got like a, you know, I'm straight A's through my grad school. Like, of course, it's so focused on what I want to do that, like, that seems like a, you know, not the same, but, uh, but yeah, I often go to other people and be like, I had a 1.7, you know, and they're like, can you graduate with a 1.7? I'm like, I think so. I think I think I did. So when you left high school, what did you think you were going to do? I mean, you knew you were going in the military, but did you think that was a career at that point? No, I think, I mean, even, you know, when the recruiter's trying to strong arm, strong arm you into a six year contract for a $2,000 bonus, I was like, no, 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 four years, and maybe if I want, I'll do more, you know, for the Air Force, it's either four or six when I was going, and I really wanted to do, I wanted to be a pararescueman, so I, like, I was 18, like, 130 pounds, wasn't even heavy enough to get, you know, I, you had to be 140 at my height, and my recruiter's like, sure, <laughs> yeah, so I started swimming and working out all those things, and I just knew I wanted to do, like, my my time like do some service maybe be in the guard afterwards like you know that always seemed like an option down the road I always knew I want to come to New York City I want to be a writer I thought maybe there's some way I can do that in New York City you know I've I listened to you talk about it a little bit like being able to get kind of local to New York City and have a career so I thought you know maybe something reminiscent of that um I I, yeah, I always knew I was going to the military. I always figured maybe a theater degree was not going to really translate to, you know, like I didn't really, I'd, I'd been sold on the whole be enlisted, not an officer thing, even in high school from from the sergeant, the retired sergeant who was teaching. And I was like, yeah, I really don't want to be behind a desk. And, I, you know, I was just, I'm just so, I wanted these big things. And so um, I went and enlisted. I just thought like, Everything points to go enlisted, do classes while I was in. I got all those prereqs out of the way. Why did you want to do college at all? Being that 
so it seems like you're only interested in what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. That's where you're going to excel anyway, right? And then you didn't have a great academic record, so it's like, I mean, did you just want to get it back and go, no, motherfuckers, I can't get AIDS, I just didn't want to or something? Was there some, was it hubris? Or like, well, because you're, you know you're going into a career that doesn't require right. degrees, right? Yeah. You got the military anyway that's paying bills, so you don't need a degree there. Yeah. What was the, what was the need to, to, to get these degrees? There was, there was probably a moment where I was on the fence at 18 of just moving to New York City and just like being a bar back and like trying, trying to do, that was definitely like, I think I told my girlfriend at the time, like, we should just move to New York City. Like we'll we'll work in theater. She's an actress. We'll work in theater. We'll just like, we'll figure it out. And I totally could have done that. But then I always still want to get that service in. And I think just to satisfy my parents, like get that degree. I love, you know, making the crack about, I mean, a creative writing degree, like a playwriting degree, like, you know, just pieces of paper to me. But I mean, I'm, you know, but I'm proud to have earned them, but I'm not as proud of them as I am of like earning like my belt buckle for firefighting or like the certain things that I earned in the military. Those accomplishments are like, I'm way more proud of those and the the work I put into them. But you know, then, then it's like, okay, let me get the bachelor's to appease my parents because maybe all this idea of freedom, like, I don't really have those parents who like, you know, I needed to go to med school or anything, but like, they were like, you're going to go to college, you know? And I was like, let me do that. And then tell them like, here, here's my creative writing degree. Like, I'm going to go do this. You know, at some point I finally told my mom, like, I don't think you're going to see like me do that whole white picket fence, 20 years career, you know, grandkids in this, in the traditional way. Like I'm just so dead set on this. And I had to like build the confidence to tell her that. And that was post-military when I told her that. Did you need like the bona fides to become a writer with your parents? Did you need to go, Hey, I do have a piece of paper that says I'm a qualified writer. Like there's something like there's something that you need some substantiation. Otherwise it's just, well, that's just Dakota going on a trip here. Like, yeah. Thinks he's going to be a writer, but you need some. Am I reading too much into that, or was that a, a part of the reasoning? Maybe you know. Even I got a creative writing degree. I didn't feel like a writer. I only just got around to calling myself a playwright, like and not feeling like it doesn't sound right. <laughs> right. And well, because you know the truth. Yeah. You know it doesn't mean anything. But I'm wondering, like, yeah. for parents' sake, was it kind of like, hey guys, see, this is a piece of paper says I'm doing this, so therefore. I got to go do this because I have this degree and that means something like, uh, yeah. Yeah. To, to be like bonafide by the paper. I think, you know, I even told them like, I don't know, maybe when I go to the military, I get a degree in something useful and I'm a writer, you know, like the survival job, whatever it is. I I think I flirted with getting like a stage manager degree because I I do enjoy that work and I like being in the world. So I think for my mom, it was like, just get a degree. Like she has always believed in me as a writer She's, you know, such an avid reader and I've, I've told her she needs to write, um, that that's always been on the table. She said, cool, just, we'll do this one thing for me. Like, like get a degree so that you're more valuable in the workforce, whatever. Those things that are important to her as a first generation in her family to get a, a degree. And I think first of her siblings even to get a degree. And so, and I always felt that and she, maybe she wants that legacy continued or, 
you know, she just, she sleeps better at night knowing the bachelor's degree in creative writing could at least make me become an officer in the military. You know, if I go back, right. you know, right. something like that. <laughs> so you go into the military knowing it's going to be a stint, essentially. I think I'm always open. You know, I think I created this, these timelines for myself that I'm like, that's okay if I stretch it a year or two, or, um, there's like three vital moments towards the end of my military career that I was like, Oh my God, I, I could, they always, you know, at the right at the end, they give you these little, they dangle these carrots in front of you. Like I had a chance to maybe go work on like air force one or something. And I was like, Oh, that would be such an experience. Like, but do I want to commit like three more years just so I could be like, yeah, I was, I flew on air force one, you know, like I really wrestled with these opportunities towards the end of my career, which was going well. Like I made staff in like three years, staff sergeant, like three years. And when I was getting out, everyone in my unit was like, what are you going to do? Where, where do you think you're going to go? Like, you know, um, <laughs> like people were just baffled. Yeah, right. Cause I also like, you know, I, I would get accused of like bleeding blue. I was like, I just loved, I loved it. Like I really showed up and I tried my best and I made great friends. So, but I love having these different careers. You know, I went to firefighting afterwards and I, love that too. And like people, once again, my mentors are like, so like when you become a leader, right. you're going to do this, this and that. And I go, no, 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 no. Like this is a, this is a stint for me. But I was always open to if my heart carried me into right. a full career in the military, that was definitely nothing that I put like a, a, a firm X on, like that I wouldn't go further. So did you know about PJs, I'm assuming before you went in the Air Force, you, had you done your, it sounds like you'd done your research and you knew what service to go to and what job you wanted to do. Right? My bottom line, I went to all the recruiters and I was like, I want to be a medic. I want to be in the field. Okay. Why, why medic? Uh, my mom's a nurse. Actually, all of her siblings are medical. Um, <clears throat> that always felt like, I always felt like I wanted to be in the field and maybe doing something like that, you know, like helping people live. Gotcha. Um, I, I never was like, you know, I never wanted like stack bodies or anything like that, you know, as, as the Marines love to say. And I thought a, a Navy corpsman, I want to be with those guys right. and I'm down for whatever I need to do for, you know, the military. I know what it is. I know what I signed up for, but I always picture myself like, helping people. And, you know, like recently I just got my EMT and I feel like I've come around to that in a different way, but I didn't know about PJs until I went to all the recruiters and I said, I want to be a medic. I want to be in the field. Then the Navy was like, we can't promise that the army was like, uh, you're as fab. You should do this. And the Marines were like, we can't promise you shit. Like right. maybe you can, you know, go do, you know, uh, and then the air force is like, actually <laughs> we can send you straight to pararescue, jumping out of planes, saving lives. And that immediately, like, I was 17, my eyes, like, glazed over. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, once again, I went to MEPS, like, 132, and my recruiter's like, drink lots of water. You're not heavy enough. And, like, I was just skin and bones. And I gained, like, 20, 30 pounds. Like, I I, I quit whatever, like, my, like, uh, I was working at fast food, and I got a job as a roofer, and I just went and just lugged like tiles on the rooftops and I swam and did all that stuff. But yeah, I, I think bottom line, like, you know, is like, as if I went back, it's like, I still wish I could have just 
maybe went in and been a corpsman. Like, mm. I think no regrets. Like, whatever job I was going to do, I was going to do it the best I could. And I, I really tried. Like, I did security forces uh, for the Air Force. I got to go run around, you know, with rifles. And right. I got to do a lot of that cool training. Um, but even then, I wanted to be the guy carrying the first aid kit. I wanted to go to combat lifesaver course. I want to do all that extra stuff that made me, uh, you know, a better warrior and, and made me possibly like better equipped to help my friends. What happened with PJ? What happened with going to the pipeline? I just, uh, just brass tacks, like 18. I didn't have it. I, I never grew up swimming. I like started going to the pool and I was like, ah, this isn't, this isn't natural for me. And I, you know, read all the books and I had, they had a PJ come down and put me through my paces and that was all great. And then, you know, you get that narrative of like, do you want to wait around here in Idaho, like training for maybe doing that? Or do you want to like go in the military, get some time, grow up a little and get big, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, yeah. You know what? Like I, I can't sit in this town any longer. And so I went off to be security forces thinking, oh, yeah, I'll get so much time to work out and stuff. And then, you know, finding out that security forces are like the most like doggedly overworked. Like I was working 16 hour shifts, going home, and just passing out Panama schedules. There's never enough people. There's never t- they're always taking your day off to train and everybody's getting fat because we're just sitting in a guard tower eating garbage and, you know, and a couple of my friends are PJ dropouts and they're just so like they made it halfway through the pipeline and they're so negative. And I just I did my job the best I could. But I realized quickly, like I had to get up at 4 a.m. to go to guard mount the armory to show up for my 6 a.m. shift. I couldn't get up at two to go to the pool. I just wasn't. And I eventually accepted that. I went to nukes first, which is just also just another layer of like the most brutal, like horrible hazing, like horrible conditions. And I had to like really fight just to get out of like that. And then, then I went to Korea and it was just, yeah, it just wasn't fitting into my, my big picture. So I'm assuming it was an easy decision to leave the military. Aside from those like three dangled carrots that I call them, I mean, yeah, I made it sound so bad, but the problem is, too, I loved it. Like, that's me telling you all the factors of why I couldn't get to the gym. But I showed up to, like, nukes, like, with such a, like, let's go. Like, you know, I I did get more physically fit. I just was never hitting the pool. You know, I love the people I worked with. It was always those people above you, like those jaded. Some people spent six years at that same base and never deployed, like, you, you don't deploy from nukes and you're stuck there because once you get that clearance, yeah. they don't want to pay for someone else to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I hit the button on the website of like, I, I tried to go to the combat cameraman base. There's all these little extras. I tried to go into the tops in blue. You ever heard of those guys? The tops in blue is like the talent show for the air force. They travel over the world and they, they've been around since like the Korean war. Uh, and then they fizzled out the year that I like hit the button on that. Like months later, an email goes out and says like, they've kind of shut down the tops in blue. 
I met someone at my program, an actor. She, she retired from the Air Force. She was in my first year. She had done that tour twice. You, you do like a year. You know, like that sort of, I was going to say Bob, uh, Bob Hope kind of like thing. I, I mean, basically, I think what it could have looked like back in his day was Bob Hope tells some jokes, Tops and Blue comes on after and does a song and music, talent. People in the Air Force who have a talent, they invite you to a twice a year audition if it's singing, instruments. So I thought, man, I could do lights and sound. I could do roadie stuff. And then when I moved to New York City, I'll already be good to go. And so like I was trying that I was in, I was at Whiteman Air Force Base, just hitting that button. And then that fizzled out and I was like, Korea, Turkey, like get me to one of these. Those are the ones that like, they're not, you know, like I think different branches call them a deployment, different branches call them a tour. And I was like, I hit that button. And as soon as I got that, I remember they installed a flat screen in the armory that listed who all got orders. And I remember standing in armory and seeing that name, my name pop up and everyone hating me. Like, especially the ones who've been there six years who had hit that button every three months. Like you just, you, you try to, you, you like opt in for orders. So why did you get orders and they didn't? Just, uh, luck of the draw, like, um, just, and maybe, you know, you start to do that thing of like your dream sheet doesn't exist. Like that dream list of bases. That's not a thing. That's what they tell you. And I was like, whatever, I'm still going to try. Like it's going to number one on my list was, the two places in Korea, one, two, and then in Sirlik, Turkey, which was also considered like a one-year tour. And then the deal was you do that, you're going to go somewhere else. But then some people did come back to Nuke. So like you meet some guy and he's like, yeah, I did Korea and I'm back. Like no choice. You know what I mean? And so, uh, but yeah, I remember just jaded like people in their mid-20s who had just wasted away at this base. And then finally when I left, they made a new system. I won't say what it is, but it's like two-year, four-year like cycles. But some people spent wow. retired out of that base. Wow. wow. So when you leave the military, what comes next? I did um, that sort of 60-day trip backpacking, and I thought, okay, cool. Like, oh, wildfire fighting, huge. Like, for the two years leading up to me getting out, I was like, that's my next chapter. Okay. Uh, my dad. Yeah, my dad. Forest service, the whole way, I think, for him. He might have dabbled in BLM, but like when you're doing the seasonal work, you can just switch around. Um, he was um, on an engine uh, and he worked on a Type 2 hand crew initial attack for a while out of uh, Idaho City. And uh, I mean, a couple years after he left, a hotshot crew sprung up out of there. So I think a lot of people he worked with, you have to like spend two years to get become a hotshot crew. And he had told me like ever since I uh, was old enough to remember like stories about like hot shots and he'd take the piss out of him to be like, Oh, we call them hot shits, you know, like smoke jumpers, jumper bros, like the kind of thing the military does too, you know, like where you kind of like, <laughs> but anyways, he told me stories of that. And I was like, wow, I, I'll never be that tough. Like, I'll, like as a kid, I was like, that'd be so cool. Like, it's like, yeah, just like any boy who's like, well, be a fireman one day. I'll never be like that. I can't see myself. And then I don't know, the military gave me the confidence to be like, fuck it. Like I'm going to, I want to be a hotshot. Like, and so I was reaching out to different crews before I was getting out and they're like, cool. Like, you know, get a season in. Um, so I got a season in on a type six engine, pretty much the smallest engine in Southeast Idaho. I went to, uh, 
the academy for it, the, the, the little academy they had locally. And, and what, whose crew was it? Was it just a local? This is a Bear River Zone outside of uh, Montpelier, Idaho, which is close to Paris, Idaho, which is the most southeast town. And there's, there's um, a little This was a forest service okay. um, in the same district as um, as my as my dad works in, and just a different, completely different side of the district to drive through it four hours. And but it's still forest service. Still forest service. Still, a lot of times college kids seasonal. These are for. I mean, this kind of crew is for kids who want to get some like life experience, pay some bills for college. And that's what my dad did. He paid for forestry school by every summer going out and fighting fires and they get fires, but not as often as like hot shots. It's like, you know, I got on a fire like once every month, didn't spend like two weeks on it, but it was still like to get the, the start going on the career. And then I, um, I went to New York city. I went to the, the new school. Like, so yeah, I, I, it was, just, it was just like spring, left the military, traveled, did my first season, um, got real dirty, did fires. And then like, I remember I had to say no to a fire and just go to school. And I came like, I skipped like the, the orientation. I was transferring anyways. I didn't need that freshman thing. So, I I mean, there's so much of this, this, that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. This is what I think it is, but yeah. Do you identify, do you, were you always identifying as a writer who's just busy doing some other things and having some cool experiences to stockpile kind of your whole ammo shack of experiences that you can leverage. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Just voraciously trying to get that sort of live to try and live and get life in there. What do you think, I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about what ultimately scratches that itch or or does it ever get scratched? I mean, for you, when you think about making it, I'm using my air quotes here, is that you sitting in a room reminiscing and ex- exploiting all these different experiences creatively? Or is it doing a little bit of that, but then go right back out and I gotta get back, I gotta go on a ship or I gotta find something new? Like, what do you see? What's your tradition? What's the dream? I've started to finally indulge in kind of more like the artist aspect of being a writer. Like, the idea that I just, I wanna experience life. And I don't think I really enjoy all these other experiences. Like they're selfishly so enjoyable and potentially beneficial to my writing. So like if I didn't enjoy traveling, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do it just to become a better writer. So I'm just, I'm starting to lean more into like, you know, some of those people you look up to where it's like, I'm trying to enjoy now just as much as I want to have successes, you know, with theater or writing or something like that. Um, so I think, yeah, I don't picture myself exploiting all those experiences. Sometimes my writing is like complete, it seems completely unrelated to all this travel and adventure. Right. You know, I, I wrote an absurdist play recently where it's more like society. And yeah, all those writers that I love, you know, the letters they write to their friends about what they're thinking about in their lives. And then I'm, you know, it's like reading like Tennessee Williams letters about like the society in Italy or traveling and, you know, it's not, it's not always like the microcosm that he analyzes. So I'm trying to like get music and film and paintings and art into my life. It feeds my soul. And then I'm hoping like, I want, 
I'm making such good friends and collaborators in theater. I'm trying to just like kind of live a good life. A service is a huge part of that for me. So, you know, my, my image is success, which has been asked like recently, you know, in one of our classes is like, I think I just, I love being in the game. Like I love, I want to be in the circles of writers. I just went to an event today where it's like, oh, I actually know people in this room. This is cool. Like, like when I, I met you at, um, the Arts and Armed Forces, like, reading for the last Bridge Award. And I actually thought you were a judge on that because you recognized my name. And I really initially thought, oh, you must have been a judge on this one. And then you had mentioned you'd read my play. And that was, like, one of the first times where I was like, ah, like, someone I haven't met or, like, in the artistic community, like, like, there's name recognition. And I'm starting to see all these, like, connections and I don't know, I, I just, I, you know what I really want? I want that like sort of just post Paris lost generation salon so bad. And I know it just doesn't, there's different ways that life is different now. That's so cool that, you know, we can do this conversation across the world, yeah. but, um, yeah, I want to like be in the artist community, be a part of it. I'm not too focused. I want to be good. I'm trying to write the best thing I can write. But I'm just not too focused on like the end goal. I'm trying to live in the moment. That's something that I learned over the last few years of being in New York that I've tried to process like what is my idea of success. And it's like I'm working on a play right now and I'm going to rehearsal tonight and last night and I'm having so much fun. I'm also like producer on that quote unquote self producing. Mm -hmm. And it's like I'm actually having fun like doing all these like things. It's kind of military, firefighter, stage manager part of me likes accomplishing goals and tasks and communicating and connecting with people. So yeah, my new like idea of success is like for some of these playwrights I look up to, to be their friend or like to see them at events and like get to workshop with them. Right. If a fire came up, would you take it? Like a, during the summer to fly out? Well, right now, I mean, another, I'm so sprawling with these things, so I apologize, but like I got my EMT certification last summer and I thought, how can I, I mean, last summer it was cool. It felt like I was growing, but it's the first time I spent summer in New York city. And I think about last lost my mind. I think this proves I need, I need nature. Like I was always getting this great dichotomy of, of the forests and New York. I loved it. I mean, I, I would, I flew off a helicopter on a mountaintop in Colorado, got on a plane in Denver landed and went straight to class the same day and and i just i walked a class on fifth avenue at the new school corner windows looking over the the most famous street in the world like the most expensive i mean and i just sat in that in such a way that was so internal that no one in the room knows like i don't even tell people like the other parts of my life and i'm just sitting there and i'm all right i'm in theater mode now like i'm learning about uh, uh, dramaticism in the body or something like that was the class and we're meditating to start the class we're like right. we're closing our eyes right. and she's trying to meditate we're in a forest and I'm like I just came from a forest like <laughs> but I don't say those things I just like internalize it and uh, what have just it was one like a milestone or a beautiful moment for me and um, so yeah so I got my EMT and now I'm thinking okay there's these teams that work on fires um they're, they're called uh, REMS teams. That's like rapid extraction uh, medical 
service or something. And there's those ambulances and medics that uh, go to the fires and they go to the different uh, sides of the fire. And I think maybe that might be part of my next chapter, working ambulances in New York City in the winter, going out to fires. I think there's a way where I can literally fly from New York to the nearest airport, uh, show up with my team and work on a fire. There are like windows like that. So you're saying separately from that, working riding in the box, doing ambulance rides in the city is, I mean, I, I've been out of the fire service for a while. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming it still doesn't pay that much. I mean, was that a day job or is that literally just getting your adrenaline on while you're writing during the day or something? I'll, I'll tell you what, it pays better than being a medic here, or I mean, an EMT here, okay. but... I mean, and firefighting paid less than being an EMT here. It's 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 a shame, sure. really. Like, I don't complain because I enjoy the work, but I feel bad for people who have families in these things. Yeah. Uh, that's a big part of the play I wrote about firefighting is just, like, grappling with the idea that people do this and they don't. And, you know, I make more money hanging some lights in a theater in New York. I get it. You know, it's whatever. But, it's fine, man, but still, yeah. yeah, I get inherent guilt. Like, if I work past 10 on this gig, I get time and a half. You do not get time and a half on a fire. We work 24 hours, and they actually take eight away because you're legally not supposed to charge 24 hours in a row. It's illegal. So they have to play games with the hours. Um, I will say for working like basically a contractor on a fire, it's kind of like being a contractor in the military. They make the actual money. So ironically, you know, like I want to work on these. I actually have a guilt aspect to that too, where it's like, okay, I get to be on one of those teams where I get to hike in with the hot shots and they're going to work their ass off all day and I'm going to get paid more than them. And that is hard to grapple with too. Like I, I'm actually wondering how I will react to getting to be with, you know, a team of one or two other people, you know, hotshot crew is very kind of militaristic in a way that I enjoy where it's like there's structure and we all, we eat together, we sleep together. Um, we, we make sure we have our battle buddy. Like we make sure everybody's, we got our back. And then there's the medic who kind of rolls out in a, in a, in an ambulance or a, a, a four wheeler. And it's such a necessary part yeah. of this yeah. whole construct. But I'm not going to be digging line, you know, I'm going to be ready to react. I'm going to stay fit and all those things. But yeah, I guess I'm, I'm wondering how I'm going to feel internally about that. If I get into that, in, in, into one of those contractors. Let's, let's just stop for a second. Just, we, we should probably do a little bit of digging no pun intended mm -hmm. wildland firefighting thing. Yeah. Uh, Cause uh, I don't want to gloss over stuff that people might not the knowledge that people might not take for granted. So, right. Um, talk about wildland uh, for you. Um, first off, most people don't have any idea how fucking exhausting it is. I think people have started to wrap their heads around it because uh, David Goggins. Oh yeah. You know, was like out doing wildland fire because you couldn't find anything harder. Yes. Yeah. That hopefully gives people an idea of like how hard wildland firefighting is. For you, what's what's been the most challenging thing? Is it getting down mineral soil? Like what 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 breaks you physically when you're doing it? 
Oh my God. Every year I would go up to my hotshot crew, get on the, no, even the hikes, the death hikes that we do to start it, the runs up the mountain. We was in Colorado, very, our, our backdrop is mountains. We'd jog up to the top of it <laughs> and do push ups and, you know, all that stuff. And I love that. I, I hate it and I love it, you know. And, you know, in the military they say, you're getting paid to work out. You know what I loved? I was getting paid to work out hourly. Like, you know, I'd show up at 8 a.m. or whatever it was. I'm on the clock. I'm getting paid. I, it actually was real because, you know, what they say in the military, they go, you're getting paid to work out. And it's like, yeah, like not enough. And by the month and I work, wait, if I do the math on the hours, it's sad, you know, when you do the math. Uh, so that was cool. I was like, oh, I actually am. When someone yelled it during a run, I was like, yeah, I am on the clock right now. Like, yeah, I'm going to get this run. I'm getting paid to run. Um, and so you get to your first fire and your hands are soft and your feet are soft. And, you know, by the end of it, you're just, you know, so messed up, like body wise, like by the end of it, just there's no level of tiredness. I've, I can't even, uh, but then I miss it so much. I mean, the first fire you get on, I always think I should, what am I doing? Like, I should quit. Like, this is unbelievable. Like, this is not. Nobody in their right mind should be doing this. Yeah, just like 16 hours or more of just beating the earth, my hands bleeding, like all my calluses just popping and like just seeing the handle stained with blood and and somehow still loving it. And like I'm next to like, you know, 18 other firefighters and most of them are twice my size. And we're all just putting our heads down and just digging. And, you know, hotshots get the privilege of usually getting to light off the fires, the backfires, and seeing that just beautiful, like an ocean of fire, like you can't capture it in any way. Like that's the hard thing about writing a play. It's like I could never capture that. How do I do it in other ways or how do I capture other aspects? But, you know, the brutality of that work, like my body is just so beat, like I can feel it now. Um, and like just humping a chainsaw over your back. Like I loved when, you know, I read David Goggins book right now, uh, listened to it and him talking about like, yeah, like sharpening your, your chainsaw and like cleaning it after like in the dark with the headlamp on. And all you want to do is just lay down in the dirt. Like never better have I slept than just sometimes not even putting out like a pad, just laying on top of my sleeping bag and like the Arizona desert <laughs> worrying about if a scorpion will get me, but really not. And just out like completely out and then waking up and your body just doesn't want to move and just doing it again for 14 to 21 days. Like there's no other job outside of the military that I can think of. And that's why when my friends get out of the military, I'm like, have you thought about, <laughs> you love to hate that. You love to suck. Yeah. Come, yeah. come fight fires on a shot crew. Like, yeah, yeah. I, every year I thought about quitting and I didn't. And that, and, I could quit. You know, the difference between the military, the military, you get shot if you try to leave on a fire. You could just be like, I want to go home. Like there's a lot of shame in that, but like they would like, they're not going to tell you, you can't, they'll give you a ride to the nearest town at least. And some people do a lot of people quit hot shotting like after the first fire midway through the season some people never come back i couldn't believe i came back like every year that i I did for four years i thought i could do two like i thought if i could just get through the first one and they say you're not a real hot shot until you've done two back to back and that's when they give you your buckle some crews they give you like this buckle it's like one of the proudest things like i worked so hard way harder for that than 
anything else in my life. Um, and to feel a part of that group, you know, like the other people in that crew had been doing it for, I mean, some people have been doing 18, 20 plus years. I can't, I can't believe it. Yeah. Do you have identity crises ever? Do you ever walk, I mean, just walking around the street and you're like, you know, I'm a fucking wildland firefighter, you know, or, you know, I'm an Air Force vet, or I'm a writer, I'm a playwright. You know, like, do you ever, does that ever, just because you're passionate about so many disparate things, like, how do you, or do you have kind of a holistic, even-keeled view where you're like, well, I'm just Dakota, and there's all these parts of me, and whatever, I'm very at peace with all that. Or is there something about you that does identify at various moments with different aspects of yourself? Oh, exactly. That's one of the, I give myself, like, stolen valor. I'm like, I just told you all that stuff about firefighting. I didn't do that. Like, I'm like in New York City, like, you know, wearing comfortable clothes. Like, I've never, my hands are soft. I've never worked a day in my life. I love that. Some guy, this old guy on my crew would say, Sylvia, you never worked a day in your life. I'm like, really? All that time in the military? I've been on this crew two years. I just love that he'd say that. Um, No, really, I, I switch I think it's part of my nomadic lifestyle too. I switch personas. If I tell an actor, which I don't often, unless it's like necessary that I've been in the military or fire, it's really fun when someone thinks they know me and think, oh, it's a firefighter. And then I say, yeah, I lived in Korea. You know, a year later they find that out. They're like, what, who are you? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, even in, on my wildfire crew, I remember hiking into a fire and mentioning like a story about being a cop in the military. And someone looks back at me and goes, you weren't a cop. You can't. You, I could not see you writing a ticket. And I was like, I did, you know, like, or even like in the military, like, I just can't see you. And it's like, what? I'm out here. Like if I can do a fire, you can't, my, um, you know, when I come to theater, it's all a totally different energy. And obviously the, you know, being on time and being respectful, those things I bring from all these other aspects of my life. And I get frustrated, you know, with New York, you know, there's, with people not being on time, all those things, you know, blame the subway, which happens. But, um, and I have to like tell myself, like, relax. This is, you know, this isn't a fire. This isn't the military. Um, and yeah, like nobody would, people, if they look at me, like this guy's probably been in New York his whole life. He looks like he's, you know, like a finance bro, like, or something, you know, <laughs> like, so I think I, I legitimately watch people's faces react when I tell them a story like that, like digging line and bleeding, you know, and they're like, I just can't, they can't picture it. They can't fathom it. And I, sometimes I can't either. I get yeah real identity crisis about it. I'm like, did that happen? Like, I, I literally have like a fear that someone's going to ask me like, what, don't ask me what units I've been in. You know, like, I'm like, what units was I in, in the air force? I really, do you remember? Like, I, I do, but there are, but I know what you mean. There are some things that people will say, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. You know, like acronyms or sayings or yeah. or something like that. And generally, generally, I think I, I mean, I haven't been quizzed on it. Yeah. But I, I think I remember all the units. But, but no, I mean, it is funny the kind of things that slip. And I think there is something about if you have many very different things that you've done in life, like something's going to leak out. Something's going to yeah. slip brain that you're just going to forget because you had to invest so much bandwidth in something else. Yeah. And I think, I think that's right. I, think that's I right. worry about that. Yeah. The more yeah. I switch gears, yeah. I'm like, maybe I should journal more or yeah. like, or, or write down in a way that yeah. you forget, you know? So I can't remember if we talked about this before, but, um, 
Uh, did, did we talk about Warwood and Phil Korth? One of the guys we took on is one of our resident artists. No, I don't think, mu- not much at least, okay. maybe in passing. It was, it was interesting because, um, God, I haven't even had him on the show yet. But anyway, um, he, uh, so he was a Marine reservist and he wrote a play about his unit when it was in Kuwait before it went into Iraq. And that was just what the play was about. And the best part of the play was the dialogue. Like, it's it just, it's such barracks banter. Yeah. It's like, fuck, goddamn. Like, like, people get chills. Like, listen, like, oh my God, that took me back 20 years. Yeah. I, I, you know those conversations. And, um, but he wrote the play in, I want to say, like, nine, ten years after he was there. I was like, how the fuck did you get that? I was like, well, when I got back, I wrote down all the dialogue. Yeah. And I was like, of course he did. Yes, because you're not fucking writing that dialogue now. Yeah. And is there? And, and so I'm saying this to say, um, is there a party talking about forgetting unit names? Is what I worry about in my own writing is I go, I've lost the scent. I can't hear these voices anymore. Fuck, I just had them three years ago. I would have had this. Yeah. But it's it's dated, and it's like if you don't get it down. Does that scare you at all? Does that worry you at all? Where you go, I have so many, like for me, I was thinking of like a, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta feast off this fucking meal in front of me and I can't think about anything else. I don't want to get any more experiences until I got rid of this. Yeah. Because I gotta capture this. And then, and then now I can process more. But if I haven't fucking done it, I'm like, I'm gonna lose it. Because it's not gonna be purely military, purely whatever the vibe is. It's gonna be infiltrated by this other shit. Yeah, which is also really interesting, but needs still bandwidth. You know, does that happen to you with all the different things you're doing? Yeah, totally. I, that's a fear. Maybe that's why getting closer proximity back to wildfire fighting, like yeah. you know, as a medic, maybe it'll get me close enough that I can get to the banter again. And yeah, and also it changes. I assume you know, like yeah. I you kind of made me think of like Tim O'Brien, like the things they carried. Like the second he got separated from his unit, that feeling of of like oh, I'm not. Like, I don't even know the jokes anymore. Like, you know, like they come back and visit him or perhaps the narrator. And he, and I remember like really connecting with that. I read that after the military and, uh, and thinking about like, oh yeah, like, you know, or like, um, Hemingway's like a soldier's home short story where like you just, he meets another person who's, you know, you got out and he meets a young person who's in the military and he can't even communicate with them anymore. And that's such a, like a, I guess just that hard truth to swallow um, which those writers were able to capture for me. And I think about like, yeah, what if the slang's different or like, I'm, I don't have it anymore. Like well, it's almost like you need the discipline or I'd not say you, but one uh-huh. needs the discipline to like sit down. I've never done this. I, and I, well, I'll get to that in a second, but, yeah. but I feel like you need, one needs that discipline to be able to sit down and go, I could take two weeks after whatever the fuck I just went through, whatever significant emotional experience I just went through. And I'm going to sit and I'm just going to write. And I'm off the clock, and I'm just fucking writing, capturing shit. It's not going to make any sense, but I'm capturing every snippet, every little thing, so it's there, and it's preserved, and it'll be keywords, it'll trigger me, yeah. even when I get back to this, you know? I feel like that is the best way to go through these kind of very diverse lifestyles or eclectic lifestyles where you have all this different shit, and you, you want to keep going from pop to pop to pop, but it's like, I got to capture this though now, because while well, it's fresh, otherwise that's it, it's done. Yeah. But I've never, I've never been able to get the discipline to do it. I've, and I remember, like after Afghanistan, um, I took like three weeks, and I kept thinking I should be writing right now, and I didn't even know what to write because it was so, and like it didn't need to be a story. 
It could have been like snippets. It could have been conversations. It could have been, hey, just walk into a room. What does all this sound like? Like, I wish I had me now sitting next to me then going, okay, just do this exercise, do that exercise, yeah. capture something. Because, um, but I remember going, well, it's me. It's, it's, it's all embedded in me. And I can't separate what's worthy of being captured and what isn't. Like yeah. The acronyms are flowing so easily, that's just how I think. So I'm not noticing that that's probably worth putting down on paper. And yeah. I don't even know how to get that on the paper because I don't have a story in mind. And I, so I don't know even know what it was. It, and, I, and I was talking about, I was like, I really need to be decompressing right now and blah, blah. So right. psychologically, I just wasn't in that place. And I didn't want to be cooped up in a room. I was like, I need to be out. I mean, it was COVID was happening. So oh, I yeah. Explore a lot. But I was still like, I'm back in the world. I want to just see and taste and smell and get some food in my fucking palate. You know, like I want something different. But if you can get that discipline, that's fucking magic. Yeah. I think that's such a, and especially for guys like, well, like us, I guess. Right. You know, that are turned on by so many different things and things that are outside the mainstream of writing. Right? Because now you incubate as a writer. And it's like you're, it's like, Britney Spears or Justin Timberlake is like getting incubated in the Mickey Mouse Club and then become an entertainer. Like so many writers yeah. incubated in that womb and that cocoon of the entertainment world. You don't get that diversity that we have. That, you know, yeah. like, hey, the wanderlust and the adventure and the life and death stakes and all that shit, which will make your writing fucking epic. Mm -hmm. But you gotta capture it. Otherwise, it's like, oh, fuck. God damn, I, I'm hinting at it, but I'm chasing that. That's how I feel. Yeah. I'm not, there's no question that. I'm just like, that's, that's how that's, this is hitting me, though, everything you're saying. Well, it makes me think, I'll say I wrestle with that a lot. Like, okay, should I write it down immediately after it just happened? Yeah. Or yeah. should I let it gestate? There's, you know, tough to say. yeah. Know. I'm going to the actor Studio Drama School program, and they're very much about, you know, there's like sort of that Strasbourg thing of seven years yes. as an actor, right? Yes. And we think about, how that might translate to writing? Like, what if it's more about the feeling or the emotion? Um, I think stories, I think stories need to marinate because you won't yeah. story yet. I feel like dialogue or snippets of dialogue. Those pieces ground it, that, yeah. That deteriorates quickly. Yeah. Because you'll move on and it'll start getting dated. That, I, I'm, I'm talking on my ass here, but yeah. just off the top of my head, that's what I think. Yeah. I think it's the story takes some time to, to germinate, but... But those, man, that fucking kinetic, like, oh, shit, I'm still hearing them in my head. It's like, that's the shit that's perishable. Yeah. I, tr I try to figure, yeah, I'm always going to be trying to figure out which of that. Like, I got to see, like, a, uh, I got to go to an event today where I saw, like, Bradley Cooper and Ellen Burstyn have, like, a conversation. And it's like, should I be writing all this down? Like, or can I just be in the moment and absorb yes. this? Yes. They dropped some bombs of, like, actually, I, the friend next to me started writing down, you know, really? things. Oh, wow. They were just so genuine, like art, artistic advice, not just actor, director, whatever it is. And maybe I'm hoping that later tonight, you know, my brain will process that as I sleep. And, you know, later, maybe it's not the words, but it's like the, the inclinations, but definitely like, so, right. You sit down to write a military play, whatever story, maybe not the military, but something years later, are you inventing some of the slant? You know, I'm, maybe I'm second guessing myself. I think I've done that where I'm like, wait, did I come up with this? We don't say that. Do we say that? <laughs> yeah. You start to worry about the authenticity, but definitely, yeah, there's like pieces, touchstones that you want to take with you and you're afraid you might lose them. Do but you then, do you ever take notes? 
Um, I'm not, I'm not exactly like a sit in the bar and like write my friend's dialogue, but I've definitely like always taking notes, always taking ideas down. But I do, I actually, I think I avoid trying to take snippets of speech. Um, there are times where if I do remember it later, I might write it down. Like just, I, um, my girlfriend's from Argentina and you know, English is a second language. She like creates such unique sentences that are so beautiful and like prosaic, like that she doesn't even, she's just putting together the words that make sense to her. And she'll ask me like, is that appropriate? Is that how you say that? I go, no, but like better. She used to say that could be, no, that may be instead of could be or something. Yeah. No, that, that could be, could be instead of maybe. And then I started thinking about like just etymology and like where does maybe come from? Is it a combination of the word may and be that may be that could be could be? I don't. There's just like so many like ways that she uses language that I try. Yeah, it helps me get out of my own like American yeah. slang or whatever and think about language in a different way. But then yeah, I don't think I should be sitting around trying to invent new sentences. Right, right, but right. yeah, well, it's also like the poetry and the, and the of the syncopation. Mm-hmm. speech right yeah I think that when you when you talk about like well especially military stuff or any kind of multi-character similar experience you know it's said right it's like there's a poetry there's a rhythm there's a and that's I think what's so hard to capture like if you, the ear deteriorates a little on that yeah it's like oh fuck you know yeah. Also, all those stutterings and interruptions oh, and uhs yeah. and ums. And you think about, like, I had a professor who, you know, did sort of the uh, David Mamet kind of exercise where I think we, we did do something like that. You know, we interviewed someone, recorded it, transcribed it into dialogue just to see, like, how conversations go. It was funny for me, like, she, she said, ask uh, your roommate, whoever, their most embarrassing moment. I asked my roommate and I go, what's the most embarrassing moment in your life? And he just sits there umming and awing because he can't, he's like, I don't know. I don't get embarrassed. And then that just created this whole thing of like me, like asking him more questions. Like, what do you mean? You, you know, like, I thought he could just like throw out an answer. And my class was just fascinated by, I asked a person to engage with this idea and he's, his brain just wandered. Um, and then, like, that exercise for me was more valuable, like, yeah. maybe investigative documentary-style plays versus just, like, writing down, all, writing down all his ums and ahs, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. How many pieces are you working on right now? I'm, I'm in my most prolific era right now, like, somehow, which I am enjoying. Also, I like that about the process. Like, I can't complain that I'm just writing so much, but... I'm doing like last edits on this full length that we're putting on in March. And then my thesis just got kind of greenlit for next year. So now we're going to, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a Hemingway adaption. Um, and I'm just so excited about that. Like it's hard to not be like, I'm going to jump from this current thing to that thing. And then, um, I'm working on like, it's sort of an absurdism play that like, the first half of it has been how like I was able to get into the William Inge festival by submitting like a, a I guess it's sort of a stage reading part of their festival. Cause I submitted a piece of that and I'm just so like pumped on that. Like it feels like that's got something 
And then um, I'm writing short plays in classes, 10-minute plays. And then I know there's at least... Oh, yeah. And then I have a first draft of a, a full length I wrote last winter that I'm finally revisiting. And wow. we're doing sort of a revision process. So like this last semester, for instance, every two days I was on to something different. I was writing the play that we're rehearsing now. And the next two days was an adaption. The next two days, um, the way we're doing the thesis kind of thing, we do it sort of the actor studio style of like the playwright director's unit that they're known for where you kind of do this sort of collaborative environment. You got the director and specific actors that you're improving, you're bringing in scenes, you're, you're getting to like workshop in the moment. So like it's luckily for me, like that's a different process than like the play that I'm putting on now where I just kind of wrote it in a dark room. So walk through that. So what does that look like? So the playwright comes in with just a concept essentially for the sake of, like the beginning of the playwright director's unit that we did, um, you know, sort of a prompt was given of like, let's write uh, progressive plays. And, you know, we we did exercises to say like, what do we care about right now? What does that mean, progressive plays? Uh, or just active, like, uh, you know, something you care about, right? Like, uh, okay. you know, the environment, politics, race, okay. whichever, okay. whichever you want to like affect an audience. Okay. And so we're like, okay, cool. Um, I got like I got my director assigned to me, and then we kind of picked actors out of. We have like the way they run it is like a repertory. There's like a handful of directors, a handful of writers, and a whole load of actors. And it was cool because pretty much all the actors got to be in a piece. And then so we got our first rehearsal, whatever it was. We got in the room with the actors and we sat around a table and we said, "What's important to you?" And I got to ask like each actor like specific questions, like what's like grinding your gears, what's on your mind. And some of these actors, you know, they don't write and I, I'm always pushing actors to write like they never written a play and they're like you know what I want to see a story like this or you know that's what happens in the military a lot right like someone comes up to you and says you should write a movie or a play about this but you know got the actors we're sitting around so a big topic that came up to us for all of us that we could be get, sort of get behind was like the idea of labels in society you know whether it's like professor or you know, gender, or even the name that's given to us at birth or the family name. Those are labels that we carry, you know, all those things. And so we kind of built from the ground up. I put them through improvs. Uh, luckily, the new school is very, like, experimental or postmodern. So, like, I was able to throw a lot of, like, kind of devised theater stuff at them, even though that's not really my cup of tea, per se. Like... I put them through a scenario where what if you were immigrating to the U.S. through Ellis Island and then when they were midway through the scene, um, I had them stop and I had them swap roles. And that kind of took them by surprise. But then now all of a sudden the power dynamics are shifted. Just very simple things like I'm not the first to do that. And But those are cool things that I learned from my undergrad that, you know, the actor studios um, does a lot of improv and stuff, but we're not necessarily devising theater all the time. They have a course for it, which is excellent but you know it's more leaning into classics or realism and all these great great parts of theater that i like as well and um so i you know i got through we put them through you know for three different rehearsals like different improvs and then i took away like the essence of that and i went and i i went wild and wrote like 30 pages over the course of a week and brought it in and they really clung to it and i kind of shaped each character around them I made a point not to just like steal what they did in the improv or like take lines from them, but definitely there were points or inspirations in these improvs of how they act. And yeah, I mean, these three characters were essentially written for them 
and sort of wrote this absurdist piece that way. And the director was helping shape that as well through like physicality, mm. through just me and the director having conversations. He's the same director that's directing the play I have in March. So we already have this relationship where we can really talk to each other, talk about what's not working with the scenes. And so that process to me is new, you know, as opposed to the typical playwright at a desk, you know. And, but yeah, I would take a lot of notes. I'd go home, I'd digest it, you know, like let it ruminate. And then, yeah, I actually ended up writing like three different plays just out of those first conversations around the table. And sort of picking the one that just felt like when they read it out loud the next week or two um, rung true. And everybody felt like, I think the actors really fell apart of the process. They were thrilled and in a way that felt collaborative, but it wasn't, um, it was still like me kind of having to drive the story or the concepts um, and then navigating how they like wrestle with their character and hopefully shaping it around their experience. What is your battle rhythm for writing? Do you write every day? Do you have to write every day? For that fall, just constantly churning, which I loved. And, you know, during my travels, I was writing every other day, like, kind of because I had to, because, you know, I had this production coming up, and it almost felt not great to be traveling when you have, like, all all this stuff. But somehow I, I felt like I did my part and like I didn't sacrifice the right. I mean, the writing was done. I guess it's mostly producer stuff, but edits, rewrites, things like that. And here we are in rehearsal and I'm still, I'm going to make some minor tweaks and we're just going to, you know, I'm not going to be that guy that just like changes the script on them the last day. I've set these standards. We're doing a reading on Sunday and I told them after we do this reading, same with the, the group that you saw Daisy theatricals, we're going to do like a little table read. And then, you know, I'm going to do one more swipe and then let it firm up. So like right now I'm writing, but I guess, yeah, when I'm traveling, not as much when I'm uh, wildfire fighting, I get so much reading done. I'd say reading mostly cause it's hard. Like your yeah. my brain just hurts. Yeah. And like, I just don't want to be on my phone. You know, when we're driving to a fire or away from a fire, three, two days of travel on the road. And, um, I would get some writing done. I've written whole plays on on like fires that are being rained on, but they're not dying. The fire's still there. Like we just we're waiting for the rain to stop so we can assess it. Writing? Yeah. On your phone. Uh, on my phone and notebooks. I, I will carry notebooks on the field um, when it's or like for instance, we will be at camp. We're all at camp. There's muddy roads everywhere, and we're just kind of hunkering down under tarps and you know, playing cards and all these things when, when it's like, we can't be actively engaging the fire. So in downtimes, usually traveling though, when we're on the road, going hotel to hotel, like getting to the fire. Are the plays about fire when you're writing them? Like, because mm. you're so immersed in that world is, I would think that's disorienting and even dangerous to suddenly go, all right, now here they are at an Italian cafe and, Guy yeah, I just think that'd be like cognitive dissonance to be doing that while you're under a tarp. Like you're not, like it's tough to feel that, and see it, and hear it. Yeah, is that what you're writing? Or is it different stuff, or is it on topic? Is it on the fires because you're like, oh yeah, I'm here, and this will be a good time to finish this. I sometimes it's in the camp, right? Like I, I remember we were in a fire in Canada, and I was. I saw like a, a newspaper. We went to like a gas station. I got a newspaper, and it had a short story in the front, and I said. 
oh, I could do, like, I didn't like the story at all. Like, I was like, ah, this is rough to read. And I, you know, my whole unit, or my group of guys read it. And they're like, Sylvie, you should write one and submit it to them. And then I did. Like, I was actively engaging the fire. I'd get to camp at night. And I would just, on my phone, I typed a short story. And then I sent it. And I got it published wow. in, like, that local paper. And that was, like, yeah, it was about firefighting. It was just we'll call it marketing, you know, like, Hey, I'm a firefighter. Here's my story. Like I totally, you know, squeeze that lemon, but, um, otherwise, no, I like the escapism of writing, you know, sometimes I get back and I just pass out, you know, it's not going to happen sometimes. Yeah. Really a lot of it is the three days, two days traveling two and two to three away where we're kind of like in limbo, you know, yeah. we're trying to get home so we can clean our gear. So we can get those 48 hours of R and R and then right back at it again. And I know there's some people I talk to where it's like, yeah, they can't, you know, even if they have a simple job where they don't have to interact with anything, they have time to write or read. They just can't switch gears. And I think I train myself, particularly in the military, um, to be waiting in training and like writing my notebook while the other guys are just shooting the shit. Um, obviously within reason of like, don't look like you're not engaged or, you know, those things like at least it was better than being on your phone, you know, like when it came to being around the unit or something. So I don't know. I, I trained when I was taking those classes. I'm in Korea. Sure. Uh, we're doing, I'm sitting but, but in a Humvee but under an M2 in a turret. And I'm like kind of quietly trying to type while we're doing like these huge peninsula wide exercises. And, you know, people are trying to s sneak a wink if they can, right, right, you right. know, I'm like in there, like it's raining and I've got like a, you know, all that stuff. And I, I just, yeah, I got used to that. Like I almost... And I'm writing um, criticism of a painting uh, for an online class for art class. Or, yeah, I, I was in Missouri, you know, before that. That was the school that I went to for a little bit. And I had to do a Missouri Constitution course. So I'm, like, scrolling through the Constitution trying to write an essay for that. So I think I've trained that muscle. And I do question it, too, when people are like, wait, you can – you could." be near a fire or whatever. Like, I don't know. You spend 14 to 21 days on it. I'm definitely, I'm either actively engaged in the fire or we're doing nothing. So. Yeah. I mean, I can see like stuff you don't, I don't want to say don't care about, but stuff that's like, you know, academic, if you're doing like academic, I can definitely see that. Mm -hmm. Stuff though, where you got to like, you know, deeply invest the creative process and it plays, especially when you got to act them out a little. Yeah. Oh wait, okay. It's this. And then like, I'd be like, Wait, what? I can't, I can't get in that headspace now, but that's crazy. Yeah. I wrote a screwball comedy my last season. <laughs> we were on standby, they call it a staging. They were staging us in a city in Arizona, and we go to the park every day, and people would do, be doing pull-ups, push-ups, yeah. you know, like, we're on standby, we're not in our area. Like, you know, if we had a place, like a, a firehouse would be in that house, you know? Right. That was our, <laughs> we'd go to a park, and we just have to be ready to respond to, you know, there's lightning storms coming through. We're going to do initial attack. So sometimes you get that. Sometimes you go out there for 14 days to like Phoenix or yeah. close enough and 14 days of nothing. Sometimes it's that. Sure. I forget about that, but that rarely happens because usually we're just going to the biggest fire. And I remember during that one, I wrote completely absurd screwball comedy. That's actually the play that I'm revisiting right now that I'm like revising and yeah, I mean, I guess I was in the mindset of like piling around, shooting the shit, smoking and joking, yeah. and perhaps 
and yeah, I got to separate myself from the group and it's a little isolating too. You know, I had to, we'd be at a park. I'd, I'd go kind of take up a bench and I'd, you know, if somebody came over and be like, what are you doing over here? You know, like, yeah, right. cause everybody gets, you're bored and people right. get nosy and it's like, ah, I'm writing and you know, they might leave me alone or I'm reading, you know, I was, I'd read voraciously if I could. And then also go play cards, go shoot yeah, the right. shit <laughs> as needed. That's crazy. That's really wild that you can do that. I'm very jealous of that. I, I don't, I mean, they said, like, you've honed your muscle, but I also think, I don't know. Yeah, it's great that you have a proclivity to do that, and you've developed that flexibility to do that. Um, we should probably talk about intermission, right? Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, so that came out during COVID. That, came, that was when that kind of got birthed? No, I, I avoid COVID plays. Like, I mean, okay. one of my mentors is like, for the love of God, do not write. Okay. And he, he kind of like yeah, critiqued yeah. it. It's the only play I've written that's even mentioned COVID. Okay. And I wrote that last winter. Yeah, kind of. We were really focusing on the idea of the ticking time bomb in uh, storytelling. You know, like if there's a bomb under the table and there's a timer on it and there's a conversation happening, the stakes are increased just naturally. And I started obsessing over the idea of like 10 minute formats. And it's like, I had recently seen an awful, just one of those plays to make you want to be like, oh, I need it. I God, like just wasted my time. Yeah. Yeah. And we sat in the most uncomfortable chairs, which respectfully, like if I had to do a play and it was an apartment, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like the best you could do, you get stools that there's a trash can over there. I'd flip it upside down. That's a chair. But in my, my buddy, I brought a, actually, I brought an Air Force friend, a canine handler. He was in town for like a, a thing. And I brought, I go, you want to go see an apartment? And I'm already thinking like, oh, he's it's cool because he's down for anything. He's a good guy. And, uh, and I know better than to bring like a, a proper military guy to like Shakespeare. So I brought him to this thing. I go, this could be cool, could not if you're down for it. And he's like, yeah, man, like he's kind of like me. He was one of my best friends in the military. Like let's experience, I'm in New York City. Yeah. So I take him to this apartment play. It's like rough but he comes away with like wow that was cool like this is your life now you know all the, it was one of those things where you bring someone into your life yeah. and um so yeah bad play the seats and then later i went to a film and somebody like knocked over like a beer or wine and just like ruined like two rows of seating with that puddle and you know that sticky awful and i just put those ingredients together into this sort of like couple drama um, and then just COVID came up, you know, in, yeah. in those characters conversation. Really? Oh, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking a lot about how many COVID couples I saw fizzle out during this period, you know, people who kind of housed up together yeah. and how many relationships I saw suffer. Or, uh, I want to say in, in my case, our relationship, uh, my girlfriend, I've been with her for over four years. Mm-hmm. We like, we like bonded. You know, um, so that's how that kind of came up for that play. But yeah, I guess a little bit post COVID, however post COVID we are now, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a, it's such a fun piece. I mean, I love the concept of it and I love the construct of it. Uh, the couple themselves, what was the inspiration for them? So you, you have these COVID couples in mind, mm-hmm. right? Did you have specific people in mind? Like, were you... How much were you hearing them and how much of it was, I need the guy and the girl and I know the types that they are, or how much of it was, I, I remember that guy, I remember the face, I remember, and then the rest of it falls into place. 
I try me specifically, I try not to take too much from like a specific person in life. Sometimes I try to picture the actor I want to play the character. Um, yeah, I've just kind of made that a point for myself at a certain point when you're trying to figure out what kind of writer you are. And so there definitely is like this couple that met about the same time that me and my girlfriend did, uh, October before COVID, where we just, whether unknowingly or in conversation, measured ourselves against them. We couldn't help it. And I think they egged it on. You know, they wanted to show how intimate they were in public. We're not like crazy public. Yeah. So, and you could see, I mean, and this gets like into ego and stuff too. It's like you could see where they felt challenged by our love for each other. And I watched them just crash and burn in the worst way possible. And me and my girlfriend are looking at each other like, yeah, like good. Like, I mean, at a certain point we just say like, we cannot compare ourselves to them because they just sprinted, you know, into like living together and like all these things that I think a lot of people did is coping or whatever. Don't fear of being alone. That's the thing with these COVID couples. They're so afraid to be alone. And yeah, I put that in there. I had, I had one of the characters go, maybe, I rushed into this COVID like living together because I was so afraid to be alone during such a traumatizing time. And whenever it came to me and my partner living together, I really, we really analyzed it. Like, you know, are we doing this because of COVID? Like, is this the time for us to live together? You know, not walking into it going, oh, this is going to be so great. Like, you know, um, and I couldn't believe how we, we came out of it stronger and I even was so ready for just like it to go wrong. You know, what do you do if you're stuck in an apartment and you, you know, the world's like saying the streets are closed, do not go outside. Like, what if that happens? And I just thought about like hell wartime, you know, I've read um, stories of, you know, cities being under siege and like, imagine like the, the couples that had to go through that stuff or like I've read some crazy stories, you know, just about, you know, World War II, couples being separated and, and all that stuff. Yeah. That reminds me, where are you planning on traveling in the future? Are you going to do conflict zones? <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, right. I assessed conflict journalism yeah, at some right, point. Right. And I determined, you know, I read, I, I just feel so awful. There's this, this, this great journalist. She was, she lost an eye to do it due to an artillery strike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's, such a prolific journalist she passed away i think you know when i was in high school and i read her biography and i realized about the end of her career is when that kind of era of journalism finished where now it's very dependent i know you can go get a great degree and go you, you, i wasn't going to go to yale and get a writing degree in fact she had a yale degree and couldn't get work in the 90s and um, now it looks like if you're looking into becoming like a conflict journalist, perhaps hopefully you were like a combat cameraman in the military and you can parlay into there, but you need to get your own camera. Yeah. You need to go to a conflict zone. You need to get a social media following. You need to write video interview. You need to be your own talking head. You need to be a cinematographer. You need drones. Like you're a one man band. And that's just not how I pictured, like, you know, I read uh, Evelyn Woe's book. Um, 
about journalism. And it was, it was kind of like a, a satire on journalism of like a hundred years ago. It's not like that anymore. All these journalists had like assistants and they stayed in the hotel and they went to the front lines and came back. Now you got to like, yeah, you got to figure out your own visa and sneak into the Ukraine and there's there there certainly are there are people I know that have that have done a lot of writing and just made it mostly their writing done the mm-hmm. hit um, and kind of trusted your Rolling Stones or your New York Times to come and you know grab something from you yeah like, but they don't hire you right like they, they, don't, they yeah don't hire you and, but and, but they do build up their credibility and then yes yeah they can fall into things almost all of them I mean uh, I mean my not telling tales out of school, my friend Holly McKay is, you know, yeah. uh, is awesome and all that. I think it helps to be a female. It helps to be somebody that, I, I don't know any guys that do it. Like she had her photographer, Jake Simpkins, that would travel with her. Um, but I mean, she was, you know, obviously front and center. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if you can do it as a guy. I think you're too much of a target, too threatening. Just to be male, I think it's too hard. There's certain brass tasks brass tacks aspects of that like I remember the, the book's called In Extremis and yeah. I'm forgetting the famous journalist but no I, she, I know exactly you're talking about I can't remember she right. really gets open about that she talks about during certain conflicts being able to go in with the women uh, who are like being held hostage getting to talk her way through a checkpoint um, but also of course the dangers too she's so much more of a target and I think she had such a, a balanced way of talking about it. she'll talk about her male counterparts and her female counterparts and where there's advantages to the male counterparts and advantages to the female and yeah she absolutely used those aspects and weaponized 100%. them 100% and, again, I think, and that's what I say like, I think I think personal I mean this is just my take but I mean from what I've seen and I have to say there were three combat zones that I was in where I saw conflict journalists there. Mm-hmm. Did not give me a very good impression of conflict journalists. It's very clear to me what I saw. Oh, there's I almost all of them. I don't know what the fuck about we're talking about this? Why not? Um, almost all of them had hand had um, not handlers. They had fixers. They were almost always right. the wrong tribe almost always the wrong clan, almost always people, and they're just being fed bad guy propaganda because they, they're, they, and they don't know any better. In some cases, they literally have walked off the plane into the country to just infiltrate, and these were countries you cannot walk off a plane into, so in yeah. a lot of cases they've been taken into custody, there's people that have had to do workarounds to like, there's a whole bunch of shenanigans that had to happen for them to be there. And I will say in many cases that included them sleeping with somebody of influence um, to stay there, to be perfectly frank. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, being misused or led astray. And there's stuff, the stuff that they would get published or that I would see get published while I was in country, All right. inevitably was, um, it had to be the anti-American stuff. That's what gets, that's what gets eyeballs. There, it, it, the second you bash SOCOM, the second you go after this, that, and it was always wrong. And I'm not saying it was wrong because I was just smart the part of like, like, you're talking about things I was at. Yeah. And it's like, you literally, anyway, so I, I have a very dim view of a lot of that because I'm like, and there, 
one person, Holly, I love. So I even stipulate since I mentioned mm-hmm. her by name. Holly's awesome, and, and um, she's written stuff that's been controversial and all that, but she's fucking awesome, and a lot of her stuff has been vetted and validated and checked out and, and, and passes the smell test, and, and she's kind of put her money where her mouth is. There's other people that I'm thinking of, though, that I do not feel very charitable about who you know, now are getting very swank jobs at papers because they've yeah. on the resume, but it was inherently, yeah, it was like, oh, I'm going to write from this very remote corner and tell something. Anyway, I say, yeah. I say that to say um, it's interesting, and I, if you get into conflict journalism in any way, shape, or form, or even just conflict literature, mm-hmm. to be able to go and write from a place like that, yeah. I think it would be wildly interesting, and I would be incredibly impressed at what access you could get as a guy, because that's the biggest thing to me. Is I was like, I mean, there was one girl who was, um, yeah, she ended up dating this British guy who'd like gone rogue. I mean, not actively rogue, mm. not AWOL, but he was just, he had a military background, all that. And he could drive, he would drive with an AK and a Jeep all over the country. Yeah. And so she'd be there because she was his girlfriend. So she had access, and I'm like, oh, yeah, well, no, I mean, what guy is, he's not going to invite a guy to come along with him and go, yeah, come with me all over the place, and I got this arms deal I'm going to do, and I'm maybe with this drug dealer over here or whatever. He, like, you know, I, I, that's, he wasn't that kind of guy. It's like, oh, yeah. you need that trusted person. You know, they need that remote romantic connection to make that work, or at least the guise of it or the potential of it or something. I sound like I'm saying Every conflict journalist has to be, you know, kind of pour themselves out. That's not what I'm saying, but I do think, like in that, that was one example of where I was like, "That's a female that's going to get access that no guy is going to get access to." And I do think it was the, I think it was Joan Didion. I think I've talked to you about this with Okay. But Joan Didion yeah. said, "Like that was her whole secret, right? Is that she was so unprepossessing that everybody would want to show off in front of her. Everybody would want to open up. Everyone would want to explain why they did what they did." And she would just come in and it was just so, you felt so comfortable because you, you could dominate her. Yeah. And that's why you would open up. Yeah. That's, right? I think that's what maybe bothers me a little bit when you find out how journalism really works. Not just that, but like the amount of acting or performing you have to do. Yeah. Like what's kind of cool is like, you know, there, so the freelance aspect of journalism is, you know, you, you don't really have to write to the beat of the drum of a certain paper, which is cool or outlet. There's a, you know, there's a, um, I'll mention the, you know, kind of popular YouTube journalist, uh, Andrew Callahan, who he said in interviews, he goes, uh, he looks a lot, very young, long hair. He wears an oversized suit or he did initially. He's probably changed his methods now. And he said, you know, he's show up to like Sturgis and he just looks like a college kid with a microphone. And he said, people would just open up to me, you know, like, he, he just looks aloof and his hair is shaggy and he's got this Walmart suit, uh, which I think he auctioned off for a lot of money for a charity or something. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah. And the same with like Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, sure. He would talk about when he would do sort of political stuff. He would dress up whatever character and he goes to the door. And as soon as they answer the door, he's like, can I take a shit? And it immediately disarms people. So like there's a performativity that certain journalists get, or they just, they know what kind of person they're dealing with, you know, that, and perhaps I just, I'm just so obsessed. Like if I really could, I would be like this sort of JD Salinger writer in the dark, just like observing and writing. I don't like the big part of the new journalism, right. Is, um, you gotta film your own stuff. You gotta do those interviews. 
um, that an extremist, that journalist talked about how she adapted to having to be a talking head, even though, yeah, she wanted to write that, that big piece that like changed yeah. the world. Yeah. And she also talks brass tacks about, yeah, like how do you be, um, neutral in, in a conflict and recognizing that she had power, you know, there's a, I just can't bring up any specifics because I'll just embarrass myself with my history. But, you know, she's at a conflict and she knew that her story had gotten worldwide attention. It had changed the the playing field. It got enough attention that the U.N. stepped in or whatever it was. And I think that's fascinating and cool. But it's like, yeah, where's the line? I mean, with a writer, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm allowed to insert myself as an adventure yes. writer yeah. into the thing. You know, have you heard of that story of Hemingway and Gellhorn at D-Day? Uh, Gail Horn uh, arrived on the beaches, the only woman to be on the beaches at D-Day, so claimed. She got to like get up front, write about everything. Hemingway brooded from a different boat, and when he found out that she got to be like on the beaches, like writing, like actively taking pictures, all these things, he decided he had to one up her. This is you know more hearsay than fact, but he, as soon as he got a chance, he joined. He left his unit that he was writing for got tied in uh, with a French resistance, got himself a bandolier grenades and, you know, a rifle and charged Paris. And, you know, like Hemingway was a very complicated man's man. So it's like, you almost get it like where he like, he had to one up his wife. And of course I, that marriage didn't work out, uh, I think. So I'll, I'll try not to pop more of what might be fact or not about Hemingway, but like that. That concept, that idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that totally checks out. Not, I guess, somewhat for Hemingway, assuming that actually happened, but just for your great writers anyway, right? Mm -hmm. There's a healthy ego. And for the adventure writer, there is something about you want to be the one, you have to be the one. If everybody is in fucking South Sudan, then it's not really that special to you, <laughs> yeah. right? And there yeah. is something about like, wait, shit, you're raining on my. I came all the fucking way over here, and you're gonna be fucking be here too. Like that, I, I get it. Like there's hubris yeah. involved, right? And so, such an interesting fucking dynamic. I met a kid at the new school. He uh, he told me to buy. He was a freshman, so young. I'm 23 on the military. I meet this 19 year old, whatever. Uh, he goes, "You ever heard of Gonzo journalism?" And I was like, "Yeah, like." Yeah, I mean, uh, um, Hunter, Thompson. Hunter Thompson, like with the Hells Angels, all that stuff. And he's like, I'm going to be like that. And I'm like, okay, I mean, you're going to like like that kind of journalism. Like, I don't think that's what I want to be. Like, right. you uh, you navigate the line between journalism and and getting involved. And yeah, once again, like as a writer, I'm not a journalist. So like there's no like code of ethics. Right. I, I have my own code, my own morals. Um, I wish, I, I think, you know, the, that book by Elvin Woe, I can't remember the name of it, Scoop, Scoop by Evelyn Woe, which I read that because I love Catch-22 so much. They have so much in common, like, style-wise, like the absurdity of war and, like, yeah. all these things. Um, it analyzes, like, the satire of all these journalists who some of them are creating stories because they need to get a headline. They're, like, literally inventing stories and back then, 100 years ago, it's like, that's how you got the news. It was these people who went there, and they're writing for specific papers, and there's definitely a bend. You know, it's like, what's going to get the read? And all these assistants and, and the way they fought each other for the stories, the scoop. You know, it's so different from now. And it's like, either way, 100 years ago, I don't want that. I don't want, like, this 
fighting for the scoop, inventing, making things sound embellished. Um, but then again, those headlines were more like this conflict happened. Like there was a battle rebels and -and so-and-so. Um, and now nobody's going to click that. We're all getting fed, you know, um, headlines through algorithms. Anyways, all the people in my school, all the people in my age group, they're not reading any news. They, they get it through Twitter or Instagram, just as bad as you think, where it's like, you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm talking about things irrelevant to our city. And my friends are like, what? Like, you know, I'm like, oh, do you know that like this bike shop just blew up? You know, the battery, you know, the lithium batteries blowing up everywhere, you know, and uh, no one knows. Like, you know, like they're plugging in their battery and they don't know, you know. Uh, So I think we've talked about this offline in the past, but uh, I think it's worth Mm -hmm. diving into a little here because and I can dime myself out so you don't have to if need be. But especially when you're pivoting from wildland firefighting to the theater world. Mm -hmm. I'll project, I'll project my own experiences and you can tell me how much or how little this applies to you. For me, um, so like, I was doing army stuff and then I'd be back in the city and I always have to do improv. I don't anymore because I'm just too fucking far away. But I generally, especially when I lived in LA or New York, I'd always be doing improv. And I remember um, going into Safari, which is the Special Forces Readiness Evaluation for 19th Group in LA. And like the night before I had an improv show. And then like the the week after I'm like, you know, back in in, still in the same class or with my same group or whatever. And just the cognitive dissonance of shifting between those two worlds and, you know, it's not it's, it's not always as, it can be this but it's not always as trite as boy I really had a tough week yeah you know I you know went on like three auditions and none of them went that well or something yeah. like that and you're like yeah I mean, my feet are fucking I have no skin on the bottom <laughs> yeah. or um, it, it wasn't always and that's obviously kind of a very straightforward obvious one but it's even it was even more subtle it was even just the um, the distance I felt from the civilian population. Well, that had to influence your improv, right? Like, oh, it totally did. It totally were, were you totally less did. funny, or you know, I mean, like, I was, was it? Was okay. And, and the reason was is because every nothing was caricature. Mm-hmm. Everything, like, I remember I do like, like one scene or something was was about um, I don't know, some somebody giving a, a press doing a press conference about some tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and it just it felt very, I was like, it was just very grounded. I was like, there's, I'm not playing up anything. Yeah. But I'll say things, and, you know, I'm talking about, and that's why, you know, we're just making sure the public knows if you're, you know, going to blow up your helium balloons, make sure you don't inhale, because the change in your voice of a couple octaves yeah. is probably too tragically funny. And that's going to, and it's like, wait, what? Huh? Not yeah. Quick. But you're selling it, right? You're selling. It what about gallows humor? Um, what do you ever? I feel like I have to pull back a little bit on gallows humor, otherwise you. Sc- yeah, I, I, I guess that yes. For me, it's not gallows humor. It's um, it's the cousin of that. It's um, that sense when you're with, when you're with people that there's such an implicit trust. Mm-hmm. You could say you realize, of course, that you're an abortion of a human being. 
like yeah. conversation. Yeah. Because there's a trust, like you know we love each other, so I don't have to fucking say I can be a fucking I can say yeah. awful things to you, right? Yeah, like family, That's like like something you'd say to your brother so or your sister. Yeah. I always go there. And I also love Mammoth. So anytime I can call somebody a cunt or, you know, yeah. really just harsh them out with some sort of like phrase and you marry that with like the brotherly banter of the military or something. Yeah. And it's and people are just looking at you like what sort of You do that to a fellow actor and they're like, Wait, what? What? <laughs> what did you just say? You know, it's just stunning. Yeah. So that to me I'm thinking like when you talked about flying in from the mountains mm-hmm. and then sitting there, I know exactly that feeling. I, I can totally relate to that. And to me, you took it in such a positive way. To me, it chafed me. Like I'd sit mm. there and I'd go, and this is me. Like Ricky Gervais said, you can only say cunt if you really mean it or if you really don't. <laughs> and I think, uh, and I, I would sit there and go, you cunt, you're fucking, you're you're taking yourself so fucking seriously, and you, and there's so much fun to be had and the artifice of you taking yourself seriously is inhibiting your art and you don't even see it and yeah. I felt like I had a really clear lens because I was coming into it all full of fresh air and vim and vigor and all that and I was like God, just fucking be just fucking do you know how to actually be with a person like yeah. you know what I mean yeah. like, so to me it was it, it felt restrictive I felt like and I became and I realized over time like I thought about hey I should come to the city and do more improv or go back to acting class just to be in the community and because it's fun and all that and I'm like I don't want to it's too fucking limiting yeah you're in that world and suddenly those become your walls and I want the real world to be my walls so that my art is free to roam where the fuck it goes does any of that make sense does any of that like what tracks and what doesn't what's different in your experience that might be why I need to travel like uh, when you get out of this like you go to other countries and what they find funny is like offensive here. Uh, and it's like, yeah. yeah, there's just so much humor in other communities that like we've banned here that it's like so like self aware in whatever culture. I'm not even going to like be specific. It's like just so self aware. And it's like, yeah, laugh at this. Like, you know, and I would tell them like, Oh, in the U S this, this, and that and they go, why like we think that's funny why don't you think that's funny and it's like we've decided for you uh you know like even wildland firefighting like i work with people from different walks of life that you know they're they're like what's going on in new york why did you what's with the new yorkers over there like my mentor like you know he's like from a very specific walk of life where he's like who the fuck do you new yorkers think you are like deciding what for me is wrong, you know, or like even somebody who looks like me living in New York city decided that, you know, like this is taboo or whatever it is. And I just, I just absorb and wrestle that because I really don't play in either field. I like, I'm really just trying to experience, I'm in no way edgy, but I do, I listen to a lot of comedy. I, I I go to comedy clubs all the time. Uh, I try to pick up sometimes they fuck up like just stupid stuff. But then, yeah, like there's an aspect of when I travel, I can just like relax, you know, like in that way. Yeah. Like, um, once again, I'm just real, I'm really not that cool. I'm not that edgy, but I go somewhere else. I go, wow, that's like, uh, yeah, you can't say that where I'm from, you know, or whatever. Um, that pisses me off. Yeah. 
that pisses me off because I mean, what the what else are we? Yeah, I, I went to a comedy show recently. They had too many lights on, and the people are like, ah, we get it. Like, the, we're in a deli. And they're like, we, the lights are on. You guys feel like you can't laugh. And it's like, we're literally making fun of ourselves here. Like, you can laugh. And we kind of laughed at that. And I was like, that's true. Like, this room is too, like, you need, like, like, one, yeah, one comedian's like, you turn the lights down. Everybody feels like they can be themselves, and the lights are up. You're worried who's looking at you. And so I, I know comedians are wrestling with this act. I was in, I was at a, the Comedy Cellar, and this comedian came in. I don't know if this is true. He's a great comedian, uh, and he's like, I showed up because I got texts from the comedians on tonight's lineup saying this audience sucks. He comes in, he roasts us, he kills, and like walks out, and he's like, I don't know what they said. You guys are fine, but like the way he was like, yeah, I was alerted that you're. And one one comedian said we were the worst in a month. And by we, I mean everyone but me, obviously. Uh, like, I thought, I've seen some of these comedians kill before. Right. I find that so interesting, you know, engaging yeah. with, like, live feedback from audience. That tells you everything right there. Yeah. Um, there's that's, a, that's yeah. Hmm. When you feel like you can't fucking laugh at what is naturally making you laugh, I mean, as artists, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. That authenticity you talk about, I, I want it. And yeah. yeah, there are people here that are holding themselves back. Um, I guess I'm just waiting for like, the ebb and flow of culture to bring us to, you know, I'm hoping. And that I, I feel that anger so much too all the time. And I just try to like maybe put it in my writing. Once again, not yeah. specifically. I will say, yeah, it does feel like I'm trying to take notice of if my characters are a little angrier. You know, like if I keep, I, sometimes I feel like maybe I write too many curmudgeons you know, um, so I, I try to take note of that and like, fine, if that's my thing, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I'm trying to absorb as an artist and it frustrates me when other people censor like that. Like I, I know there are like boundaries, but like, we are so tight. We are so tight. Um, and I go talk to actors or writers in India or Vietnam and they're like free, you know, they're unhinged, you know, like, and that doesn't mean they're doing like just crazy off the wall stuff. No, 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 right. It like, um, you can't live in a, sen- you get a world where there's self censorship or active social censorship mm-hmm. of what you're trying to do. Yeah. That, that's not, and or, you're going to create, it's going to be, it's going to provoke more outrageous stuff just for people to push back if you're artistically inclined. Yeah. That, it's, mm, that's interesting. That's interesting. That is something that I, I mean, I'm with you. I hope that does start to flow away because that is not sustainable. That that's um, certainly not artistically. That's why, like you know, comedy seller, put your phone in a bag. Like people who are there. Yeah. Oh no shit. Yeah, they put your phone in a bag. Wow. The comedians try out. St- they they're allowed to fail. You feel like in that environment, people are there because they want to see comedy and like totally. that's fucking great good for them yeah it's um did you ever go to the comic strip on the upper east side have you ever been up there no i haven't i i went to a deli show on the upper east side but i haven't been to the comic strip but yeah it always feels i live in the east village so it's like yeah. it seems like i can just trot over yeah. but going up there i know they, they do some that's like one of the the clubs yeah, the good yeah, ones right, yeah right yeah that was my old stand-up days so i just thought i was wondering if they did that as well how, how widespread is it for fun stuff I think you have to have a place that has like celebrities coming all the time. I think the comic strip does, you know, like I'm sure um, there's a few places around town, but I feel like it's the comedy store and the comedy seller. I'll bet I haven't been to the comedy store in LA, but I bet, 
I bet you put your phone in a bag of that one because, uh, yeah, like literally Dave Chappelle is going to come on and try some stuff and he doesn't want you to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, yeah, I guess you always wonder if people are coming in with polished stuff and they're like, okay, I'm getting my letterman ready. I don't really care. Like filming or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's such a fucking weird time for that. That's really bizarre. Why didn't you go into stand up? Have you ever thought about it? Um, I, I'm leading more into it now. You know, I started taking like UCB sketch classes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm leaning more into the, the like, yeah, humor in my plays more so like, um, and, and yeah, once again, the performance aspect of like acting or all that stuff, I, I think I'm fine with it. Like I always say to people like, you know, they assume you must be an actor first if you're a playwright. Like that happens a lot, or a director. And it's like, no, actually, I'm I'm a writer. I come from more, maybe more literary, and and they say, well, do you act? I go, yeah, but I consider it like you know the method slash the actor studio always says like the instrument, you know, the body's the instrument. I like to pick up the guitar and like strum it, you know. Right, right, right. Uh, I don't want to sit and pluck chords all day. I'm in all these acting classes where you're closing your eyes and you're like envisioning your goals, and people are screaming and crying, and I, it just doesn't get me there. Like you know, I I, I write out that artistic element for me. Um, I love making people laugh. I, I do well in social situations, telling jokes and that's always a slippery slope to, yeah, let me try and open mic night and get crickets. So one day I'll probably try the crickets out, but, um, I'm, I'm terrified of that. Yeah. That'd be interesting. Um, all right. We need to, we need to give you a proper shout out. Tell everybody where they need to follow you, how they need to follow you, how they need to stay on top of everything you have going. Sure. Um, yeah, at, at Dakota Sylvie. And we, well, we have a show going up at the Gene Frankel uh, in Manhattan. It's on 24 Bond Street. And yeah, if, if you go to like dakotasylvie.com or my Instagram, you'll find a link to that. And it's March 6th to the 10th. And um, we're releasing tickets on February 5th. So we're really excited. It's, it's you know, an intimate venue. Uh, I'm not, I'm trying not to boast when I say, I think we will sell out. So it's like get tickets early. This is, um, just because of the, the efforts of my collaborators and the fact that it's an intimate space and it's a one week showcase. Uh, I'm so excited for it. And I, it's called flight risk. I should say that, huh? The name of the play. Yeah. The Instagram is flight risk play, you know, uh, at flight risk play and yeah, I won't sit and boast why, but like I think I think it's going to be an amazing show, and we're kind of trying to snowball and spiral this into something bigger. And I just have such a good feeling with my collaborators. Like this, this is the this is because we want to we want a festival in the summer at the Gene Frankel, and we were invited to have like a week at the space, oh, wow. and that's kind of like the reward for that. And we just felt like. All the audiences, they sold out that every night and the audiences voted for ours and um, really loved it and wanted to see like a full length piece, which is funny because I didn't, I wrote it to be a 10 minute play, you know, like intermission play. It's like somebody told me now make a full length out of that. I'd be like, I don't know. Sometimes I think the format of a story, the medium of a story needs to stay that way. Like I said, with picture of a Dorian Gray. Um, so this one though, I, I was like, all right, I sat down to write it. Cause I tried to pitch, can I do a different play? And the artistic director was like, no, that's the game. You got to extend that play. And I did. And it, like, I'm, it worked like, 
I didn't feel like I hit some kind of brick wall of like me forcing this story. Like these characters that we, that the actors and the director and we all worked together on just kind of grew. And now we're in the midst of rehearsals and we added another performer. Um, and it's all just like growing a lot bigger than it was, than it was initially. So I'm very excited for that. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love for you to come see it. Um, it's been a blast, man. Long time coming. Thanks so much. It's, yeah. Well, yeah. well, to be continued, we got a lot more to talk about, I'm sure, down the road. Absolutely. I'm glad we could do this, man. That was Dakota Sylvie's profile in Havoc. Again, my thanks to Dakota for taking so much time and chatting with us and uh, with me, saying the editorial us. And uh, my thanks to the players for letting us record the episode there. Um, just couldn't have been a better setting to do it. You know, it's got three, four stories of unbelievable theatrical history and art. And just, it's just such a cool space. So to talk with Dakota there really couldn't have been a better setting. Okay, we started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. <clears throat> I now need to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater, my own nonprofit. So the purpose of Veterans Repertory Theater is to reinvigorate American theater through developing, producing the work of veteran artists and writers. That's it. That's what we're there to do at VetRap. Everything we do is based in the live entertainment space, live performance space. Um, we are not a therapeutic organization. We are veterans that are there to help American theater. Why? Well, because American theater does have a great tradition. And I think as Andrew Breitbart famously said, <clears throat> everything is downstream of culture. And that is one niche of American culture that has been pretty barren of veteran influence and talent. And that's a shame because veterans do bring an awful lot to the table in the entertainment space. Um, but there's very little incentive for veterans to get involved uh, in the theater, and there's very little reward for them to get involved in the theater. And at VetRep, we aim to change that. So everything you want to know about VetRep, you can go to VetRep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, VetRep.org. While you're there, the best thing to do is scroll partway down the homepage and subscribe for free to our literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. When you do that, every day in your email inbox, you will receive a short piece of veteran writing, usually fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, or maybe just a picture of veteran artwork, followed by a bunch of shameless plugs about whatever it is we're doing at that time. So uh, that's the best thing to do. It, you'll be able to be the first to know any new developments with us. And there are a lot of new developments coming. In the next month or so, we should have a lot of big announcements. Um, and our season does officially start in April. So we've got a lot of stuff that we're prepping right now. And I can't wait to be able to tell you guys about it once we firm everything up. So again, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Okay, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode together. 
I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, our thanks to Dakota Sylvie, our thanks to the players. We'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.